Les Miserables. How do you know that? You haven't even seen the play I, or the I actually, movie. I actually don't know that. Is that some Andrew I think Lloyd it's Webber Les shit? Miserables. Yeah, that's, well, man, everyone dies in the movie. I can see why they call it that. Uh, hey, everybody, this is the Boy Howdy Podcast for what the hell is today? December 28th? 29th? It's almost 2013. Today is December 29th. Uh, Annie's dead. We've replaced her with uh, Mike Russell. I'm Lo- sorry to all your listeners. Yeah, ex- uh, uh, introduce yourself, Mike Russell. My name is Mike Russell. I'm not going to call you Mike. I'm just going to keep on calling you Mike Russell. I'm Mike Russell. I'm an old pal of Bill's. We collaborate together frequently on comic stuff. Is this, this isn't the first time you've been on the show, has it? No, this is my second time. Oh, yeah. What was the first? Didn't we? Did we we did talked we... about Star Wars for 45 hours. Oh, that's and, what it was. I think oh, okay. Annie left the room in disgust at some point. Yeah. Well, she, she likes Star Wars, uh, but she also hates me opening up soda, so I'm going to take advantage of the fact <laughs> while she's gone. Uh, Annie, Annie had some family issues, uh, so she's out of town for the weekend, so Mike is taking her place. We're going to be talking about 2012 movies and review. Yeah, we're just going to talk about some movies we liked in 2012, and probably, I'm guessing, uh, given what you told me before we taped about Les Miserables. Oh, God. Uh, well, that's the funny that thing. Some is, stuff like, you didn't like. Those are the only two movies you haven't seen so far are the last two movies to come out, which are Django Unchained and Les Miserables. Well, no, I actually... It's funny, because I don't... I'm not here in any... I, I feel like I'm not here in any professional capacity. No, you're not. Yeah, you're just here. I, uh, you're, a fr- you're, you're a friend of the podcast on the podcast. Well, no, no. It, it's more that I... Uh, it's more because I don't really feel like I've seen enough movies yet to write a credible top ten. Which, I, which is uh, funny, because you've seen, like, all the fucking movies. Your top ten list is, like, nine-tenths of it is shit I've never even heard of. Right, but I wrote a really good top ten list uh, earlier this month for, yeah. like, it to be top ten January through September. <laughs> it's a great top ten list for that. Yeah. But what happened is is um, I haven't had a chance yet, because of personal and professional reasons, to see any award season movies. You've yeah. now, you have now like officially you've seen... Much. Have you seen Lincoln? No. You know what? I should have seen Lincoln instead of Les Mis, because Les Mis... Man, we'll talk about Les Mis in a bit, but, like, it's a Spielberg movie. But I haven't seen, like, Zero Dark Thirty. Uh, I haven't seen Les Oh, I forget Zerabla. that's correct. Is that even seen, actually out uh, yet, Zero Dark Thirty? Um, it's out in some cities in America. I mean, I loved, uh, what was uh, Catherine Bigelow's last movie, The Hurt Locker? Was that her last, in, wait, was that, that was her, her last movie? Because I know she and James Cameron were going at it because, they, didn't they fuck or something? Uh, I think she and James Cameron were actually married for a while. Yeah, but that was her first movie, and he was dogging her about some shit. No, it wasn't her first movie at all. She directed... Oh, that's what um, I thought, because I thought he was saying something about how she was maybe... I don't know. She's gotten some flack from James Cameron. And wasn't someone else like saying... She directed Near Dark, that vampire movie. She directed uh, see, uh, Point that. Break. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. She directed um, uh, Blue Steel. Isn't Val Kilmer dead now? Wait, which one's in... Is that Point Patrick Break Swayze? is Patrick Swayze and, and uh, But it's still Keanu, Keanu Reeves. Reeves. I remember Keanu Reeves and like all the masks and shit. Point yeah. Break rules. I haven't seen Point Break since like it was on cable since it was like on the USA channel like It is a basic cable classic. Yeah. Right there with Roadhouse. <laughs> 
That's your Swayze double feature right um, there. So, yeah. Okay, so you haven't seen Zero Dark Thirty. We're already talking about movies. We usually start off the podcast. We usually talk about what happened in each other's weeks. Well, <laughs> what happened to you? Anything? What have you been up to? Um, well, I had a pretty big month. I, uh, I, I, at, in December 7th, I we ended the Court and Fatboy show. Yeah, which is a huge, uh, for people who aren't in Portland, that is a huge Portland geek radio show. It was kind of a, it's an, it was a, I think a, a reasonably well liked local podcast. Yeah, and um, Court and Fatboy just got tired and retired. They just tired get, and retired. They yeah. basically did the equivalent of throwing down the mic and walking off the stage. They basically went out while they were still pretty well liked. They didn't run it into the ground. Well, the, originally the show used to be an actual radio show. Right until what the did the station go under a couple of years ago? That's what it was. No, no. What happened was it was a they were a, a show on KUFO. Yeah, I started going on there in two thousand six. Uh, middle of 2006. Oh, I thought you were on there longer than that. Okay, no, I was on there yeah. like six and a half years ago. Yeah. Um, and then um, I was on there every Friday talking about movies. And what was funny is they started taping. They We were all feeling very constrained by the fact that when you're on air on a on a terrestrial radio station, you can only talk for like four to eight minutes at a stretch time. Oh, yeah. Well, it's a schedule. You have to hear it too, yeah. And so we started, uh, the perfect. boys started taping the stuff that we were all talking about during the commercial breaks and the songs. Because yeah. we weren't listening to the commercials of the songs, we just shoot the bull. Yeah, we started. You're essentially having more show during while the show's off the yeah. air. Yeah, so they yeah. they started taping that and posting it to the internet as a podcast, and that ended up becoming, I think, more popular than the KUFO show. Yeah, um, KUFO, and I think 2008, 2009. I can't right, remember. Yeah. They uh, fired the guys and replaced as part of the house cleaning at KUFO. They got rid of. Fired a bunch of oh, DJs. that's what it is. Because I, I thought the whole channel just went under. Oh, it did later. I know it did later, but I conflate the two. Yeah, this, exactly. This was, yeah. They basically let the guys go. I think it's because their nerd aesthetic didn't seem to fit with a heavy metal radio station. Yeah, I can kind of see and that. And they replaced yeah. them all with out-of-town guys. Well, also radio stuff and like just like all other media stuff right now is in such flux. You're lucky if you have a show on anything, whether it's radio, basic cable TV, or anything like that for oh. longer than... Uh, a year or two of these days, no matter how popular you are. DJs are always are fired and switching jobs their entire careers. Yeah, exactly, it, it is yeah. a bizarre um, industry, and I, I saw an awful lot of it when I was there and how ruthless and dysfunctional it all is. Yeah. They, um, but they, uh, but what happened, what was funny, is they had done the smart thing. They had built this huge internet audience. So when they left KUFO, after KUFO replaced them with these out-of-town DJs, um you know, uh, these sort of broski types. Um, the, the the internet audience came with them and their podcast became yeah. pretty popular. And in fact, just... KUFO itself went out of business a year later. Yeah. Which was... Well, that, that's why it's no, no big tears for them had being kicked off the KUFO because KUFO wasn't going, going anywhere. That was a sinking ship anyway. And so, yeah, so these guys have kept on going with the podcast for like the last four years. Yeah, yeah. and then they um, decided... Uh, it's kind of a long answer to your question. Sorry, they decided. In, oh no, it's um, good to hear about Court and Fatboy because it wasn't just Court and Fatboy and you, but they would host shows where all kinds of local Portland geek people would just go on there almost every week and just talk about all kinds of different stuff. Like every day, you were the big movie guy on the show, but they, you know, other people, yeah, yeah, it was a five day a week show, yeah. um, which is never unheard of in podcasting. They kept doing it like a regular radio show, yeah, for years on end in yeah, a variety exactly, of yeah. venues, and then they were doing things like they became kind of a, a. It was really fun to be associated with the show because they became sort of a community hub. I would like, like we would, you know, they would put on monthly midnight movies in fact you and i remember that time you and i went to their screening of aliens mm-hmm. as alien i saw aliens in star trek there yeah yeah well i felt bad 
because I kind of wound up skipping out on later uh, midnight showings because I the first couple showings I went uh, midnight's uh, Saturday midnight screenings of their you know they would have yeah revival they would show stuff like Raiders of the Lost Ark and and and, and Star Wars and shit like that and uh, the first couple times I went to go see any of those shows it was back when they had their radio show and the audience was more like the dude bro crowd. Yeah, that was and that was back in the queue. That was when days. people would be just talking throughout the whole fucking film, like Mystery Science Theater three thousand their way through the movie, but in a really not funny way. Because I think what we jokingly when... called it Mystery Science Theater one thousand. Yeah, it was fucking. Year. It was bad because it, yeah, it was just. A, I mean, this wasn't Court and Pat Boy's fault, but like you know, it's actually had a bunch of drunk frat boys thinking they're like hilarious in the audience talking back in the screen. I was like. Oh man, I have this movie on DVD. I can just watch it at home and have a better time. So I never went back, but I've always heard great things about how the shows, especially once the the show moved on to uh, podcast format, about how the audience was like super cool and like the yeah the, they they kept on doing yeah the the, the, the Saturday shows and well after oh, they left after they left KUFO they kept doing the midnight movies under their own name Court yeah. and Fat Boy and uh, McMinimans to their very great credit stuck with them instead of you know. Yeah. McMinimins being a local Portland uh, bar chain, right. which also hosts a bunch of theaters in town. Their big one being the uh, the Baghdad Theater, which is just like 10 blocks away from where mm-hmm. me and Mike are recording here in Portland, Oregon. Yeah, where it's like, it's the kind of movie theater. It's a, it, what is it? not a second run, do you call it? It's second a second run, run theater. A uh, second run theater where they host, yeah, with, you can drink beer and eat pizza and shit during the show and stuff. The best thing about Portland, as I like to say. I love it. And that's also where they have Trek in the Dark every year, too, now. But which I... is uh, the Trek in the Park thing where they host an indoor... <laughs> Uh, winter uh, performance, which they just did a couple weeks ago, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah but it was funny. I remember, because, yeah, there was a big shift in the quality of the midnight movie screenings before and after KUFO. You went, you and I went to that alien screening. I was in the dark times, At, at yeah. one point, that I remember that print was projected upside down for a while. See, I love that. I don't have a problem with the <laughs> shitty projection. My One of my favorite things about any kind of second-run theater is seeing, like, a vintage print. Even if it's damaged and messed up, because you're seeing an actual print that was being used in, like, 1986 when Aliens first came out. That's fine. It's when people in the audience are talking too much, you can't hear what's going on. But, no, no, like, they, they always had to, like, I, one of the, my favorite things about the Court and Fat Boy podcast was, in addition to having these uh, once-a-month Saturday uh, screenings of old-ass movies at the back, that they would also, you, along with these guys, would host a podcast commentary with the movie right. to encourage people to listen to the commentary while at that showing, which is, that is fantastic. Ryan Johnston ripped you off. You should yeah. get some money off. Ryan Johnston ripped us off. <laughs> That's saying. right. Yeah. Um, yeah. His thing's awesome. You know, the Ryan Johnston, for those who don't know, Ryan Johnston, director of Looper and the brothers Bloom and Brick, yeah. uh, will put out commentaries that you can download as a podcast. And he encourages you to go to a movie theater the second time mm-hmm. and put your earphones in, which well, is good marketing, then, because that encourages people to go see a movie a second time. Not that the number of, like, the 12 people will actually do that actually make any impact on the box office, but, uh, you know, that's a nice way to, like, that's a good way to interact with uh, your audience. Anyway, what were you saying? Oh, no, I, I can never forget, um, I'll never forget the one thing I want to, going back to this for a second, I'll never forget when we went and saw that alien screening with all those bros doing their Mystery Science thousand, Theater 1000 sort of shit comments. Yeah. I remember when it ended and you and I were out afterwards going, what just happened? We were both sort of shell-shocked. And then this little drunk broski comes up to us and he goes, you remember this? Yeah. He looks at us with this glazed look on his face and he goes, <laughs> I was the guy in the upper left balcony who made that one comment. Yeah, like, I just congrats looked at your fucking lations. Like, you deserve a fucking Oscar for being the biggest asshole in that, in, in, in that row. I remember I just looked at him, and he just looked like he was going to fall over. Yeah. I mean, they may have wheeled him up in a hand truck. I don't remember. But yeah. he go, I go, good for you, man. Yeah, congratulations. And he just wandered off. 
<laughs> Should have kicked him into traffic. <laughs> Man, have you heard about all the people that are being kicked into in front of trains in the subway in New York? Lately? In the most awkward segue of all time. I'm just saying. I just re- that's what I was reading on the news this morning. Some lady, some fat lady, kicked some some like old business owner in front of a train in the subway. It's York. a second incident like that in New York in. This is a place you've gone. Yeah. Actually, the most loathsome... Well, no, not the most... The most loathsome thing is people being murdered. But the but the second most loathsome thing about that case was the... Um, oh, we're actually going to talk about this now. Well, okay, no, the yeah. one thing that really disgusted me about it was the New York Post ran a photo. I think it was the New York Post ran a photo on the front page of their tabloid of the guy about to be hit by the train in the first incident. Oh, like, a, like and, and the excuse that they gave. No, a, a reporter took a photograph of it before Oh, he, without even help. Seconds before Instead he died. Of helping. Okay, yeah. Or, or, they, or maybe they ran a cell phone. Or I something, yeah. But their justification Jesus for it Christ. was, and I'm kidding you, this, not, this was their justification. I need to look up while we're talking later whether or not that was the right paper. I've got the right paper. Yeah. Their justification, as I remember, was, well, we ho- we thought the flashbulb would alert the driver that what was about to happen, which may be the lamest excuse for allowing somebody to die to get wow. your photo I've ever heard. Yeah. Oh, it's just disgusting. Where do you go from there? <laughs> Jesus Christ. That... So wait, was that... Wasn't it like an actual professional photographer taking the photo, right? I can't remember. I'll look it up. Talk it's about something else. a random person? So long story short, you were a uh, Court and Fat Boys movie review guy. Yeah, I, I talked about movies on Friday. Yeah, because you're a professional film critic. I, I occasionally write about movies for the Oregonian. And, yeah. And, uh, yeah. And you will, I would, uh, the way we met is because you would write stuff for the local newspaper, the Oregonian, and I would help you illustrate some right. of these comics you would do, Culture Fault. Yeah, we used to do a, uh, I, I used to do a comic strip for the Oregonian called Culture Fault, which is nonfiction. And we met because I think I was, I had, I would, I basically, we met in like 2006. You came here in Something 2006, like that, yeah. right? No, 2004. 2004? But I met you not too long afterwards. Yeah, we, we, uh, I think we both met because uh, of our mutual pal Dylan McComas. Mm-hmm. I had, I had been giving her, I was a fan of her comics and I had been giving her like sort of job tips when Man, she was coming to Portland. I love how so much of my social contacts are people just like doing fan art for each other or just geeking out over someone else's art and just like, ah, I like your, love your stuff so much, let's become friends. Okay. And that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Yeah, and basically everybody doing favors for Dylan, and then you just happen to be in the room. Yeah. That's a... <laughs> but, uh, so yeah, but I would help you. You you were doing, uh, well, you do uh, text reviews for the Oregonian, but you right. also did the strip culture bulb in which you would go out and interview. You would just talk to different people around Portland, Oregon, and make a comic strip out of it. Yeah. And I would help you. Uh, uh, well, you had one artist, and I wound up uh, taking over some of those duties because you're an artist yourself. But you needed someone to, uh, you want someone to help you do some color work for the comic. The term like artist that. is applied very loosely. You're a cartoonist. You invented the saber to the vampire. Come on. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, no, uh, what happened is, is I would, I would, I would go do the reporting on these comics, and which, and then I would have to draw them, and I always run out of time. Yeah. Um, because of the deadlines. So uh, you, you came on board and you inked my stuff, mm-hmm. and then you and would, sometimes color it if it appeared and, like and in the Sunday color section. You would too, color yeah. and gray tone it. Yeah. Um, and, and what was funny is that I've always been a little amazed at the fact that you're actually better at inking me than, um, you do, you're able to effortlessly 
adopt my inking style. Well, that's funny. Right well, down you, to the you, slightly you shaky line. You have this line. very specific kind of like shaky-handed, brittle, almost like Charles Schultz on acid kind of like art style. Thank you. That's a good thing, yeah. That's the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. Well, not on acid, <laughs> but just Charles Schultz after, like, maybe he's gotten a blowjob and he can't keep his shit together and he's like, ah. Oh, my God. Uh, you don't like to draw feet, so that's the most defining thing. Your little, your little poop, a little toothpick feet. Mike Russell still, what's your website? My website is culturepulp.com. Yeah, culturepulp, yeah. Culture. So if you if you're wondering what the hell we're talking about, if you go with that, you'll find all kinds of stuff. Of yeah. You'll you'll see. But yeah, we're actually uh, together right now. Uh, you will. You're still. Well, you're no longer. You're still doing film critic stuff for the Oregonian. Occasionally, yeah. They yeah. don't. They don't use me as much as they used well, to. Well, you were talking about. Yeah. You, they just asked you for a top ten list. Yeah. I just they gave asked me for a top ten list, and yeah. and I uh, I had to write one before I'd seen everything, which was awesome. Yeah. I probably should have recused myself, but um, but I didn't. <laughs> so. Well, and well, and um, you do that. Oh, well, we're actually we're also working together on the Stumptown for the Stumptown Comics Festival next spring. We're also working on the poster and the badge designs for that stuff. Yeah, we, we actually talk about I that. actually meant to ask you about that before we start recording. You just want to do that now? A little peek behind the curtain, behind the have, a, have the staff meeting. Now. I think the poster should be Bill Mudry greased up in oil, trying to choke the Sarlacc Sarlacc <laughs> monster from Return of the Jedi with his buttocks. Um, you just want to be you sticking out of the Sarlacc pit? Yeah, exactly. Come okay, yeah. that's good. My... <laughs> the tentacles. Yeah. They're good, all over the place. I could be like, I, you know, I would be like, what's the what's the band with the fat B-girl in the 90s? Who had the, uh, the, what am I thinking of? Oh, no, she just, she was dressed like a bee, not like a flower, because I'm thinking about how, like, kids in, 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 in... Oh, you're thinking of Blind Melon. Yeah, I'm thinking about Blind Melon, but for some reason, I thought they had kids in their video where they were dressed like flowers, and they had the petals sticking out from their heads. <laughs> except I would be the same thing, except I would be a naked fat guy with sarlacc tentacles coming out from my neck, like, coming out of the sand, going, hey, everybody! You're just wearing a bonnet of sarlacc tentacles. And I'm just spitting out Boba Fett. Just bones. Yeah, exactly. Bones yeah, and armor. Skeleton. Yeah, sure. Uh, what the hell are you talking about? I, I don't know. By the way, this is exactly what it's like when we draw something together. Uh, uh, yeah, except uh, uh, Mike brings a bunch of toys. Except I bring, yeah, I bring a box of, of die-cast like Star die -cast Wars toys. die-cast Falcon toys and stuff. And, and, we, and then we sit around and, and Bill says outrageous things and I... I I cringe in sympathy. So you haven't seen any movies lately, huh? Not that we're going to talk about 2012 movies just yet. I have been watching some stuff at home. I'm trying to sort of catch up on some of the things I missed yeah. in the uh, in the in in the next couple of days. You don't get DVD screeners. Sometimes I do. Yeah, not for the Oscars. You not for Oscars. Part stuff. of the Academy. What what's the organization? You gotta you gotta get make sure you get some like Oscar DVD screeners. Um, can you the, do that for me? Yeah, there are things you can do to get on that list. Um, you what you have to do is join an to... online film critic society. Yeah. Or a film critic society, and a lot of times they will send year end Academy screeners uh, to those guys. I am not on any of those societies because. Well, to be blunt, I did not become a film writer to be a joiner <laughs> of societies. Um, <laughs> I just we're part of the media. We're part of the Boy Howdy podcast. Oh, shouldn't we get? Shouldn't we, as the Boy Howdy podcast, get like a little like little badges we could put on a little fedoras when there's a local film uh, uh, premiere? We can go up and ask like, when was the last time there's any kind of film premiere here in Portland? Go go out to Henry Selleck whenever the next uh, sure. like a movie comes out. Like Henry Selleck, why why why? Why do you have to direct these movies buck naked? It's weird. 
Which I'm will guarantee you getting on the Skinner list. You know, well, Henry Selick only did the first one. He I know, did not he have left. anything to well, do with Well, he Karen was never Norman. a part of... Uh, he Henry Selick, he's the stop-motion animator uh, who directed uh, Coraline, mm-hmm. which was produced by a local stop-motion studio, Leica. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he did not... Who directed... No, it was uh, people within the story department at Leica actually directed Paranorman. My understanding of Paranorman feature. is the story was come up with by a guy who typically drew, I think, storyboards for yeah. them? I mean, everything... I st- well, that's another thing I haven't seen Paranorman yet, and I keep on hearing that's a hell of a lot Paranorman's pretty great. Yeah. I liked Coraline a lot. It's Coraline not was as, gorgeous. It's a much more conventional story than Coraline. It's a more... It's still very good, but yeah. it's a much more straightforward sort of 80s Amblin vibe mm-hmm. kind of story. And um, I basically... Uh, it, 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 it is technically just as impressive, though. Uh, they did this kind of cool thing. I did not know about this tech. They did this cool thing now where they use 3D printers to they computer animate the way the characters on the, on the stop yeah, like the puppets fa- speak. Like, well, because they do that facial replacement technology. Right. Where instead of like, it's not like claymation where you can move the faces, but like, they're, they're, it's rigid plastic faces, yeah, but they animate them in... Yeah, well, exactly. They yeah. animate they the design speech it on the computer. computer. Yeah, they print, print out, out hundreds yeah. of thousands of faces on 3D printers, and then they just snap them onto the puppets. Yeah, it's a replacement animation as opposed to like like sculpting animation. It looks know. amazing. I well, had they, never heard of that. They did some of that on like uh, Jack Skellington on The Nightmare Before Christmas. His face was replacement animated, but because they didn't have 3D technology and the uh, 3D printing te- technology like 20 years ago, oh god, that movie's going to be 30 years, uh, 20 years old next year. Oh, that's. But anyway, but but <laughs> but instead of using a three D printer, they had people hand sculpt each one, like each frame of each face. Wow! And like sculpt by hand, not even just like like sculpt. Like I said, it's not like clay animation where the face is there and you just push the features around. But like, fucking animation is fucking crazy, especially stop motion, where it's not just like you know easy. You know, it's relatively easy to draw something, but to actually build something and have to like fit it to an armature and. I don't know why I'm and they have to find, about... and they have to find like the these basically these people who are functionally OCD, yeah, exactly, who are yeah. willing to do the work. Well, they were talking about was it for Coraline? They actually had to find somebody like a lady in Wisconsin who could knit the gloves and the clothing for a lot of the characters. Because in Coraline, there's a lot of like people with like knit sweaters and stuff like right, that. Right, right, right. They actually had to find a lady instead of just like making something that looked knit. They actually hired someone to like make like knit gloves for Coraline, but and sweaters, tiny. but tiny ass like little like like little like inch like three inch tall sweaters and shit. Good. Yeah. Lord. Fucking movies are fucking crazy. Yeah. Anyway. And then they spend... Uh, I mean, animation always breaks your heart, I would imagine, because you spend three years or so making yeah. a, an animated film with a team of 300, and then it comes out, and, and then if it bombs... I can't even imagine working that hard for something that everybody loves. Did, uh, did Paranorman do well? I think Paranorman did okay. It well, did which not is do funny because well Coraline. Coraline did. Oh, really? Because I know Coraline did okay too, but it didn't actually like setting the box office, box office records. Or no, anything. but it did well. It was a solid performer. Okay. I'm not sure how Paranorman did. Man, I, I should because Paranorman's been like on video and iTunes and shit for a while. There's no reason why I just don't rent that for like three bucks or something. Oh, by the way, I looked um, up. I looked up that New York Post cover. I showed it to you. Yeah. Of the subway guy about to get hit. Um, <laughs> the guy. I was just reading an article. The freelance photographer who took the photo. Uh, of the guy just about to be hit uh, says that you know people freaked out they were like why didn't anybody help this guy he had time to take the photo and he says um, that there was no way he could have gotten there Um, he's saying I I couldn't have helped him but uh, and that my and they're all saying that the flash was supposed to alert the driver which I I I find a little dubious personally but uh, what what was incredible is there were 22 seconds between the time the guy was thrown on the tracks 
22 seconds is a long and, time. And him being hit. You could make half a Hot Pocket in 22 seconds. In, in the microwave no, but oven, but no I'm one saying. could get this poor bastard oh, off the track. Oh, man. Isn't that crazy? Ah, humanity is stupid. I love I love people, but I hate people. I love people at Christmas, and then I hate them for the rest of the year. You, God damn you, it. Do you love people at... What was that food catalog you were all excited to get? Swiss Colony! Oh, I should have, like, me and Annie, we... Actually, at me, actually, mostly, I ate most of the Swiss Colony during last week's podcast. I don't what remember about you it? tweeting about Swiss Colony. You were excited to get Swiss that Colony, catalog. Because I had completely forgotten about Swiss Colony stuff since, like, since like for, like for 20 years ago when I was a kid. Is that, like, Hickory Farms? Yeah, it's still, it, all it is is Midwestern Hick... Like, hit, very regional Midwestern Hickory Farms, where you just get mail-order meats and cheeses, like, spreadable cheeses... <laughs> canned hams chocolate mice who doesn't want to open their mail and have a nice ham in there i just next year i'm totally gonna get a ham just to see what the hell it looks like because i would just mail order ham would be my band name if i had a a band (laughs) mail order ham yeah it's like from wisconsin or something like that and we just out of the blue just got a catalog for that like right before christmas like the christmas season kicked in it was like the week before uh thanksgiving and i was like oh my god because as a kid, I would go flip through that catalog and go like, oh my god, you could just have ham delivered to your house for Christmas. That sounds amazing. Boy, how many listeners are aware that you were in a band, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Oh god, uh, it was called Frank Sinatra. <laughs> it was formed right after Frank Sinatra died. <laughs> and so we thought, well, his name's taken. Of course it was. And so we only, like, we, we, <laughs> we barely did anything. All, all, I was the songwriter and lead singer, and I would, uh, most of my songs were how much I wanted to have sex with uh, prince, Disney princess characters. Oh we had a we had a song about Princess Kala from the Gummy Bears. Uh, we also did we also did have Anne Frank. I want to get with you, um, because you know she's bored the entire. You want to take her out for a date? Anne Frank would be easy to impress because her worldview is so small. Like all you have to do is like take her out to the alley. And oh, my like, oh my god! god. Oh my god! These are what Bill. pages Bill. of my career. Bill. Well, she was born in the attic. She never got out. I do not endorse any of this. That's gonna be. You know what? If Quentin Tarantino made a movie out of that, he'd get accolades and be like, oh my god, Quentin Tarantino's revisionist history about Anne Frank is so delightful. Bill Mudrin does it in a song. Everyone's like, oh god, this is terrible. Oh, what a bad oh, idea. Oh, Bill, we're all clutching our heads. Yeah. So, you know, you see, we, uh, that's movie stuff. I was going to ask you more about Because everyone keeps on calling Django Unchained revisionist history. And I haven't not. seen it. This is one of the many award season films I have not been able to watch yet for various personal and professional reasons. Yeah. Um, you saw it. What did you think? I thought it was very good. It's 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 more of a Kill Bill caliber movie, which is say it's pretty good, but not that amazing. It's not like one of his best movies. But then again, if I were a black person, I'd be all over this fucking movie because it is black people shooting white people for money. That sounds awesome. It's just a little lengthy. There's nothing bad about it. It just it, it's a th- I think it's as, it's got to be his longest movie. Not counting Kill Bill if you squeeze both halves together. Because it's three hours long. I think long. it's longer than... Oh, it is? Wow. Yeah. Well, it's, at least it's like two hours and 45 minutes long. And it feels pretty long. Well, there's like a couple uh, towards the end. You think it's going to be a, uh, a part where that's going to be the end of the movie. And then there's another like half hour that takes place after It's that. a pretty... Uh, I've heard it's pretty talky. It is, but talking in a good way. It's well written. Well, uh, and man, this movie makes me like Jamie Foxx. I've always hated Jamie Foxx because he just always seemed kind of a lazy actor. Because I've seen him in all kinds of things. One of my favorite Christmas movies, which I watched the day before going out to see Django Unchained, is the is the Robin Williams movie Toys. Oh, now I think that may be his first movie, and he was fine in that. But like Jamie Foxx, he's always seemed kind of like I don't know. He's never just seemed that interesting as an actor. Now that he's gotten a little bit older, and he's got a little more like he's a little more grizzled now, especially in this movie because he's playing a fucked up beat up slave guy yeah he's, a little, he's got he's, he's, he basically, he's got a little more range for those who don't with. know the plot of the film is that he is a slave who is um basically rescued by uh, uh, a bounty hunter christoph waltz yeah played by christoph waltz 
And Christopher Waltz agrees to give Django his freedom if he helps him find these three brothers, right? Yeah. And and then also he agrees to help Django uh, free his wife yeah. from a slave owner played by um, Leonardo DiCaprio. Leonardo DiCaprio, yeah. who apparently is great. Who's, he's fucking fantastic. That's another person who Leonardo DiCaprio, he could either be very good depending on which, what role he's given... Or he could just be, he'd just be there and just be like, hey, I'm Leonardo DiCaprio, how you doing? Uh, I guess I'm in this movie now. But he was fantastic in this because he gets to be like this like Francophile dandy where he's not French and he doesn't even speak French, but he's got all these like French affectations. Like he makes everyone call him Monsieur Candy. Oh, and and he also uh, in the trailer, what cracks me up is him drinking out of that coconut. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, and with the with with the the, the now uh, almost uh, cliche. Uh, Tarantino zoom in, smash zoom. The the Shaw Brothers um, zoom. But yeah, that's that's exactly what it is. Yeah. But no, it, it's 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 a really good movie. Um, God, it's hard to talk about without any spoilers or anything like that because the movie's been out for like less than a week. I've heard that the movie is very funny. Yeah, it's super fun. I, and I've heard it, I've heard a lot of people have compared it interestingly to Blazing Saddles, which also oh, wow. attractive and offensive imagery to serve sort of a cultural. Well, point. it's interesting because two main characters are you've got a black slave guy who, of course, he's got his own interpretation of what America is and mm-hmm. how he views the, the, the America. And you've got Christoph Waltz playing the guy who liberates him, and Christoph Waltz being this—he's not an American; he's this German guy who come and rescues him. So you've got already these two outsiders to white American society of the 19th century kind of like going on these adventures through white American society. And like, it's not like uh, Tarantino gets up on a soapbox and starts preaching about how, how awful slavery is or anything like that. But I just love the idea that these two guys, well, that's not what he's interested in. Out from the outside looking in and being bounty hunters and running around. Cause you know, it's, 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 well, Tarantino's interest is not in, and he said this in interviews, he's not interested in making, um, movies that are, uh, message films or preaching or that preaching well, not even historically or even dwell like on yeah. what he wants to do is is take these lens of history and give the oppressed party uh, well, much much as in inglorious yeah. bastards he wants to give the oppressed party a sort of fictional vengeance arc yeah um which is you know provocative and and lurid but uh, it's funny because I, I tend to be very some sensitive. people are very offended by it and some just think it's awesome i i see I, I tend to be very sensitive to people who uh when making movie will try to do something just to be sensational and you know essentially like having a movie about a black freed slave who goes not he doesn't go crazy but he somebody gives him a gun and he decides yeah i'm gonna blow holes in white people for money right that sounds like it's, it's provocative being, yeah. but no like but like I said, it's well written enough and jamie fox brings enough of a performance that he feels like a character and not just like this this cartoon of like oh, i'm just black it's, it doesn't turn into a Chappelle show sketch sketch even though it kind of like it, it, it almost gets there a couple times but it still has i don't know it's got enough the movie's got enough meat on its bones that yeah it's it, it, it can withstand uh, accusations of it just being yeah a blazing saddle when or... when tarantino's working on all cylinders and i think there's a i mean i've always had a i've had a complicated relationship with tarantino ever since kill bill yeah because i get frustrated i don't know how to describe this i have to be careful how to describe this because i want to make sure i get it right but i remember i interviewed joss whedon years ago about yeah. serenity and one thing he said that i thought was very interesting is i don't like the, the thing that I worry about with Tarantino sometimes is he makes you feel like you're flipping through his record collection. Which, like, he, yeah. He, he, he comes as references. Now, one of the things is when Tarantino's working, and I think Inglorious Bastards had this, when he's doing a, a one of his movie movies that sort of comments on film history and uses film history, he is reprocessing it in the service of a story that has an emotional heft. Yeah. 
I don't think, for example, that he pulled. Excuse me. Oh my God, what was in that soda pop, Bill? Um, <laughs> I don't still think, barf on me. I yeah. don't think that he pulls that off successfully in, say, Death Proof. Um, or... Well, Death Proof. The Death Proof, despite being, oh God, Death Proof is is bullshit. It's not. It. He is right when he says that is the worst thing he's made. It's not the worst movie in the world or anything like that. But that is super slight. There's not a lot. lot there's not a lot going on in Death Proof. Well, there's also a real recursive sense where. I think you have actors who are really self-conscious that they're in a Tarantino movie. Yeah, that is the ultimate. Oh, that's he's doing like visual references to himself. It's like really bizarre. That's one of the nice things about. Well, I think *Inglorious Bastards* is my favorite Tarantino movie. Uh, Some of the writing is great, but also for one of the reasons because it's a historical movie, he can't rely so much on pop culture gags, which he tends to be kind of a crutch for him, and. he has a bunch of he, he has, in that movie you have a bunch of actors who aren't so conscious of being in a Tarantino movie where everyone's trying to pretend that they're Samuel L. Jackson, which is the worst problem with Death Proof. Whereas I like some of the cast members in Death Proof. I like uh, oh, who are the people in Death Proof? It's Mary Elizabeth Winstead from Scott. Great Pilgrim. actors, there are great actors. You've in that got movie. Uh, oh my god, the lady with boobs from Clerks too. <laughs> Oh, Rosario, Dawson. Rosario Dawson, I love her to death. But you know, Zoe you, Bell's a lot of fun to Zoe watch. Zoe Bell's in that. fun. She's a terrible actress, but she's fun to watch because she oh the enthusiasm she has an incredible she physical presence. But she and who's the other black? Uh, whoever the other black chick in in Death Proof are, they're so conscious. Those two specifically are so conscious of the fact that they're in in a Tarantino movie that they're both essentially when they're reciting their dialogue, you can tell that they can hear Samuel L. Jackson reciting that dialogue in their heads, and they're trying to give that like, hey, no, no, I'm a tight, I'm trying to be the next Samuel Jackson in this Tarantino movie. And it just, it there's just, a rhythm it that comes gets across set. as fake as hell. Yeah, yeah, there's a rhythm that got set with Pulp Fiction um, yeah, that yeah. can become a rut. It's yeah. almost like if, and, and I, for me, Death Proof anyway was a movie where I felt, suddenly I felt the gears. Yeah, I felt exactly, like, yeah. I felt people going, well, I'm in a Tarantino movie, so I'm expected to behave a certain well, way. Also and t- and with- that, I think he corrected that to a degree with um, with Inglorious Bastards. Although though. you can, like, like... Death Proof isn't so bad because that was only meant to be half of a double feature of you know Death Proof was never really de- right. designed to stand on its own. It was supposed to be like a slight stupid little story. Although he's, it's only so, ever been released on DVD. I know in, exactly. In its own yeah. expanded cut. Yeah, which uh, it, like with not, when not presented in that double feature format, I think it like it, yeah it has a hard time standing on its own. But that's why it's nice to go back and watch Reservoir Dogs because that's a Tarantino movie before everyone realized that they're in a Tarantino movie and acting like they're in a Tarantino movie. People giving very naturalistic performances with uh, Tarantino's dialogue, which I don't think you really get again until Inglorious Bastards. Well, Waltz get Christoph Waltz gets Christoph- him. He's like, that's a beautiful marriage of an actor and a, and a director. He's essentially playing almost the same character again in Django Unchained, even though he was a fucking evil son of a bitch in... Uh, Inglorious Bastards. This time he's a good guy. Well, what makes him? But really, he's still yeah. very much this lyric, very dramatic, very like enlightened, very kind of like Christoph Waltz. Like no, 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 It's it's. He's it's... a very enthusiastic. The thing about Christoph Waltz that has made him so interesting in Inglorious Bastards is he's so charming. Yeah. Like he's and he's the same thing again. He's in got these Unchained, ridiculous yeah. affectations, and he's a horrible, horrible character. He does horrible things, but you're compelled to watch him. Yeah. And Tarantino. One thing about Tarantino is that he lives in that discomfort. Mm-hmm. He. Tarantino oh no, that's his wheelhouse. That's any, the whole point. Tarantino more than any other writer director working now loves to go to the uncomfortable place and let's just live there. Yeah. Which is why people are having, I mean, I've been reading reactions to Django Unchained and, you know, there's been a lot of people falling on either side of the film and, and 
almost in the same, yeah, you know, Tarantino is happy with that. That's the reaction he wants. He wants people to be living in sort of an well, uncomfortable it's, place. It's funny, he creates these these worlds of kind of like uncomfortable political and social right. stuff, but it's done through this filter of like this affect, affected aping of old film tropes that like, right. it's it's this weird artifice of where like, yeah, Django Unchained being like this black exploitation spaghetti southern, western sp- spaghetti southern which is what he's been calling it and uh it's 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 it and, pe- and like you know people you got people like spike lee who are pissed off because he's not right. taking the subject matter seriously well they people accuse but, him of trivializing the very real which historical he kind events. of is because he's 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 riffing off of movies which in themselves kind of trivialize stuff because he grew up with garbage you know like like trash cinema and well, he loves it, and he he lives in. But he legitimately—it's not like he's like John Waters, where he loves that stuff. Ironically, he loves that stuff for what it is, and he's like recycling a lot of those aesthetics to create these movies, which create a lot of conflict and emotions between people because people don't know if whether or not he's taking the subject matter that he's right. documenting seriously or not. Or, uh, and with all, due, it's, it's a lot of there's a lot of shit going on. I haven't that, seen the movie yet, so I can't really comment on this. But with all due respect to Spike Lee, who I think with Do the Right Thing made the best movie ever about race relations in America. They both feature Samuel L. Jackson. Oh, I, w- right. I wonder what Samuel L. Jackson has to say about this shit. Yeah. That would be interesting. Um, but I, I do think that there's a, I always think there's a difference between, and I had this conversation with people a lot around Cloud Atlas, yeah. which you know got accused of yellow face because it had actors made up and you know, white actors made up. As, yeah, I've as, flipped out as, about that on the Boy Howdy podcast before, yeah. But the thing is, is that I think there's a huge difference between something that is a deliberate provocation designed to inspire reflection yeah. and something that's just cheap and racist and whatever. And I think that for sure Cloud Atlas fell on the side of provocation in service of an idea. Yeah. What you have to ask yourself and what people are disagreeing about is, is Tarantino being provocative in the service of a larger idea? Yeah. And I, you know, in my experience, generally, I think he is. So, I don't know. I need to see the film. Yeah. You enjoyed it, though? You yeah, it was, it? It, like I said, it's one of my, fa- it's it's one of my favorite films. Well, at least it's better. I like it better than, uh... see, I, like, I was always, always disappointed with Kill Bill because that seemed too much like that was built on artifice. I think Kill Bill should have at least been one movie because I think, for, like, those movies are so, like, those two movies combined are so long and so kind of long, long-winded. And so... You, you can kind of see the seams in his work more in Kill Bill than any of those of his other movies where like trying a little bit too hard to ape the whole Chinese uh, Wushu uh, Shaw Brothers aesthetic right and without there being too much of an emotional point to it and, and until you've seen both films smashed together and stuff and it's 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 it, I, yeah, Kill, Kill Bill's Bill definitely is the weird. clunkiest uh, as, as like it's 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 not quite as outright kind of funky as death proof is but i think of, of his major movies i think it's definitely the clunky of his but i yeah i like uh Django chain more than i like uh, kill bill or what was jackie brown i feel so bad that i'm not jackie down with brown jackie is, brown is an amazing movie i've watched jackie brown a couple times and it just kind of rolled off me i don't know if it's because i'm white and, and it's it's you know it's it's, no, it's, no, it's no. like you a 70 soul it. movie or it's something mat- like that it's it's a it's a movie aimed at you actually should watch it again now that you're i know older. plenty of white folks who will stand up and say jackie brown's his best movie but like, <laughs> what? is it just white folks who are saying? Like, I know, like I, I've, I've never heard like, like I, I, I actually love it, and I'll tell you why. It's not because of a, a black white thing. It's because um, I think it's a mature movie about 
adults who are like kind of in their fifties and forties, kind yeah. of grappling, See, that's nice. yeah. grappling with regret and, it's a fucking and life movie choices. With like, was how old and, and was the thing Pam is, is that it's an incredibly, I mean, it's an incredibly sort of grown up picture. Yeah, and I and I think it's um gets better the older you get, the more you kind of see in it that's that's kind of true. Well, it's also, I mean, it's another Tarantino movie. And Samuel movie. Jackson is amazing in that movie. Yeah. Well, it's, it's Samuel Jackson, uh, or it's not, Samuel Jackson does not make these movies, he stars in them. It's Quentin Tarantino aping another genre, which is, isn't quite as immediately gratifying to most people right. as Kung Fu movie, Southern. Well, he's also doing adaptation. I think it's his Oh, that's the other thing. Adaptation. That's kind of interesting, too. But, uh... Of an Elmore Leonard story. I love is... the idea of, like, Jackie Brown being, like... It, it's it, it is more mature mature movie I don't know, mature blah, mature I can't say mature movie mature mature movie uh but I do like the fact that any movie that's gonna be starring like a forty five year old black woman that's good t- you like you gotta appreciate just for that alone aside from the fact that even what kind of movie it's supposed to be or it's Quentin Turner riffing off of old uh soul movies from the sixties uh, and seventies or whatever I just like it for that as much as but it, it's it's yeah you don't see, but you don't never see you never have people sit down and say hell man let's go rent a Quentin Tarantino movie you gotta think it's Jackie Brown no one well, ever says that it's should. always let's go let's go rent Pulp Fiction well let's you go know, Pulp watch. Fiction is a masterpiece I mean the thing is is that Pulp Fiction Jackie Brown suffered because it came out in the shadow of Pulp Fiction well, that's the other thing I remember too, when yeah. I saw Jackie I need Brown. to watch that guy I tried to uh, well I watched half of Jackie Brown just recently and again it was uh, I, to, I got distracted by some shiny ball or something like that <laughs> but anyway you were gonna say something but no 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 i just i i i actually it's a it's one of my favorite tarantino movies because of its calm because it's an interesting counterpoint he actually had a pretty good idea in that god damn this pop is making me <laughs> sorry um but uh one of the things that's interesting about jackie brown is it came out you know that was the first one after pulp fiction expectation mm-hmm. was huge on it i remember so people he... dogging that movie for the longest time exactly because it wasn't the the next pulp fiction well he yeah. zigged instead of zagged which was i think in my opinion a smart move because what he did is he made an adaptation yeah that was that starred older actors that wasn't didn't traffic as much in sort of the i don't know how i would put this but it didn't traffic as much in these sort of extreme extremities that pulp fiction traffics in yeah um it, it, it was definitely a more story-driven piece and character-driven piece in a way and 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 just sort of a slowed down grown-up movie and it, and it was so different from pulp fiction that everyone's expectations weren't met and people got really really i think were disappointed i was disappointed when i saw it the first time yeah. then i caught up with it years later and i saw the film outside of that context and i loved it we well, can, well, can take the movie at face value though. Uh, yeah. samuel i mean it really it's anchored by samuel l jackson giving one of his very finest performances and samuel jack yeah go ahead he has a legitimate beef in that movie uh as tarantino has said in interviews which is everybody's trying to steal his money yeah <laughs> well samuel jackson Django and cheney plays a uh he plays the he plays the, the he plays the head right? head house negro of right uh of Leonardo DiCaprio. and he's also kind of playing a duality isn't he that's what i've heard a little bit a little bit well it's 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 interesting because you know that django chain actually shows how like just because you're slave doesn't mean the slaves are all on the same side he's actually openly antagonistic towards uh jamie fox's character oh interesting um but like he plays yeah i've heard he's i've heard jackson's great in it he plays the head house oh god i don't (laughs) Yeah, we have to be careful with the. Uh, I know exactly. You, you don't want to talk about. You don't want to talk about. It in that's the... that's one of the interesting things about the movie is you have to be so careful how you 
talk about it. I can hear it in my head, but I can't say it out loud. I'll, right. I'll fucking shoot myself. But uh, he plays the head house servant. Right. Uh, but like he, he he's he's Samuel Jackson is kind of still playing with a whole leg. Oh yes, uh, you know a little bit of a you know racist, not racist, but like the Piccaninny kind of like oh yes, sort uh, of racist character. Uncle Tom kind of playing shit, with racist character, but like he's digging his heels into it so much that like it doesn't. I don't know. It's fucking. You have to. It's one of those things you have to see it for yourself and just kind of like. Well, you're saying you get he's, out of he's get playing with racial caricature to a degree. Yeah, a little bit, but not so much. Like it's it's kind of heightened, but at the same time, like Samuel Jackson performance still gives enough body to it. You kind of still feel this is a real character. It's not just like this racist stereotype. Yeah. That like that 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 Jackson and Tarantino are just putting up on the screen just to get get a charge out of people. It sounds incredibly nervy, and I look. But yeah, you to it. really see the movie and. Fuck. The Man, other... Samuel Jackson looks crazy too because. Like they gave him. He kind of looks like he did in um, one of my other favorite performances. He looks like a his. fucking goblin. Well, he 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 looks a lot in terms of his hair and stuff. He looks a lot like he did in one of my other favorite movies oh, of his. Unbreakable. No, no, no. Oh. Well, I love him in Unbreakable. Oh, because uh, he's got weird hair and shit in that too. The but... one where he chains uh, chains Christina Ricci to the radiator. Oh, Black Snake Moan. Yeah, Black which Snake I've never Moan. seen. Always heard about. Black yeah. Snake Moan is a, an amazing. Is that where movie. he's got like white hair and shit in that? Too? Yeah, he's got yeah, white okay. hair on side. Because they kind of did the same thing in this too, where he's got like he's got like white sideburns, white eyebrows, which look fake as hell. But thing it's supposed to be like kind of a but Samuel Jackson always does weird shit. But with like his hair. even the casting is kind of weird because like Jamie Foxx is kind of like this attractive, slightly light, lighter skinned black guy who's kind of a badass. Where Samuel Jackson, like I don't know whether or not he's he's a kind of a darker black guy than I, I ever thought or anything like I that have no idea. but like between that like his white hair and his eyebrows and like like they just with the way they film frame he's got like these little goblin eyes and stuff and he just looks like the like, way he holds himself he just looks more kind of like a little more of a, like a hobgoblin monster guy and uh huh. and uh well the first time you see him and uh, uh jamie fox together like it's interesting to see like i don't know if they made him up to look darker too it's like this weird racial thing where like somebody like i heard this black person behind me in the theater go black magic which is a reference to a uh, Chappelle show oh really where people are making fun of uh who's uh, eddie murphy's brother charlie murphy where like like black people making fun of other people for oh being, well, like he's, darker so he's dealing a little so what he's like doing that. is he's so it's dealing funny to even with... hear that in the theater watching it in the movie he's dealing a little bit with the same stuff that spike lee dealt with in school days which was racism within yeah racism and within... like it's the, it's it's the, weird to see Samuel Jackson is almost like this jet black, like super like super dark skinned in a black costume with like white collar with like really like jet white hair, uh-huh. kind of like. But it's like he said that should be the most racist fucking character in in movies in a long time. But I, I don't know. Well, it'll be. I mean, I'll. I look it's interesting. To There's it. stuff there. I can't even get to articulate stuff that's going on in that movie. But it was interesting. I had a good time watching it. You you also saw Les Misérables. Yeah. How'd you like that? That is. That has so much to say about racial tensions between the French and the poor. Right. No, I saw a double feature of uh, Django Unchained and uh, Les Miserables. That is a hell of a double feature. Uh, yeah, it was both movies are three hours. Was it like fifteen hours? Of yeah, it was. I spent all going? day at the goddamn movies. Wow. Uh, Les Miserables was packed. Yeah, it's it a was big, almost it's nothing. Making like it's making like uh, a ridiculous amount. Django Unchained had a couple. Like it was a pretty decently packed theater because I saw it the day after Christmas on the middle of a weekday. Yeah. It's pretty packed. Les Miserables was blowing the doors off the place. You had old people in berets sitting in the aisles, like sitting on the floor. The, like, like there weren't even enough seats and stuff. And I was surprised, like, they weren't breaking any fire code wow. violations. The movie's terrible. Now, unfortunately, I've never seen the play. I've never written the book. Oh, I, uh, um, how were, how was the audience reacting? Uh, audience, man, towards the end, people were sniffling and crying like a motherfucker. I've heard this movie is like a crime it, machine. It plays people like a fucking fiddle. Well, every, it's, you know, it's a super sad movie about, well, post-revolutionary French, technically. 
Uh, uh, Has Dylan seen it yet? Uh, no. Why? I'm surprised because she's a Francophile. I'm surprised she hadn't read the book or seen the play before. But I was asking her about it yesterday. She said once she had to sing a selection of a bunch of songs for the from the from the play, like in high school or something like that. But she had never seen it either. And so uh, it was great. The lady who I was standing right in, uh, behind of in the line, she had uh, she had a baguette and a French beret. <laughs> She brought a baguette. She brought a baguette into the theater as cosplay. Yeah, it was like the most cartoony kind of thing. It was like she was like some high school girl. She was like she had big thick glasses. She kind of looked like Velma from Scooby Doo. So her idea of how to look super French for her Les Rob cosplay was to carry a baguette into the theater. You know, this is not the era of France where everyone was running around like bicycles and striped shirts. Who showed up in striped shirts on their bicycles? Yeah, there should have been like a French guy like in a little blue hat, like all all dirty from the sewers of Paris, going, "Oh, I'm I am beauty." Period correct. I have st- oh oh she did it because she stole the bread. That's yeah that's, that's yeah that's what it was a reference. But no, Lame is Rob. I've never seen the play, and according to the movie, the the play is terrible because I didn't realize it was one of those musicals where everyone sings throughout the movie. Yes, there is almost no spoken dialogue. In the yeah, play. almost no spoken. So like that's what I was making fun of when we started the podcast, where it's like, "Hello, Anne Hathaway. Oh, would you like some soup? We don't have any soup. I mean, that's half the movie right there, and it's not like." That dialogue is constructed where it rhymes or it's kind of witty or interesting to listen to by itself. It is just like somebody just wrote a play and all all the non-singing stuff, they're like, I don't know, just, just make up a melody and whatever. You're like, ah, no, 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 no. And also, like, the, the, the dialogue isn't that good. Like, the... the Wolverine is singing in it, and his first song. I've heard he's Jackman. Like, Jack, you know, Jackman is a star of the musical good. theater he, he, stage. He yeah. really, no, this movie. I could see why he had a total boner for this movie because this is one of the rare chances in Hollywood he's ever really going to get to show off his Broadway chops, which, which are does, significant. He, he does a great job. If as, you ever want to, parenthetically, if you ever want to check him out and see how good he can be, go find a recording of his performance in Oklahoma. Yeah, in which he is excellent. Oh, was that like a long time ago? Yeah, or recently? a while oh, okay, back. Yeah, but I mean, he, he he's he's essentially the main character of the movie. And he he does a great job. I was super bummed because like I want to go see Anne Hathaway because I like Anne Hathaway. She's only in the movie for like fifteen minutes. I felt robbed. She spoilers. She dies like five like fifteen minutes in the movie. I was super bummed. She's Fontaine. Yeah, she's fa- yeah Fontaine. Is it, is she, she's great in it though. What's right? the soda with all the girls that are different Fanta. colors? Fanta. She's Fanta. She's one of the Fanta girls. Got lost in. She, well, Doctor Who came by and said, "Hey, you want to be my, my new companion?" And they, he abandoned her in ancient France. I like the idea of there being a Les Misérables uh, uh, Doctor Who crossover. Yeah, exactly, yeah. But uh, yeah, no, she gets super sad and sick, and they have to cut her hair short, and she sells a bunch of her teeth, and she gets sad and dies. So she only. Gets one musical number i shouldn't know when something was up when all the trailers and stuff only have her like a footage from her from like two different scenes in it i should have uh, known because there's one where she's like she's got all of her, all of her hair and she's kind of happy and then all the other footage is, for, is her being like bald-headed and crying and shit and that's all you ever see in the trailers that's all you get to see her in the, in the movie but she only has one musical number she blows the fucking doors off she um I'm going to rewind this a little bit back. The reason why I want to go see this movie, uh, I like Anne Hathaway, but it's not like I'm going to go see Anne Hathaway in any movie. She can, she's in a bazillion movies. I've only seen her in like in this and Batman. The reason I wanted to go see it was because it's directed by, was it Tom Hooper? Tom Hooper, yeah. The guy who directed The King's Speech right. and who directed the John Adams HBO miniseries, both of which uh, two things are really great historical uh, bits of entertainment, which I really liked, and I actually really liked the direction. They were both very prettily put together. Mm-hmm. And you have a thing for costume drama, which people are yeah! sometimes surprised to learn. I have an, I, you know, 
Wow. You must be very excited for uh, for for season three of, of Downton Abbey. Oh yeah, that starts this weekend. I'm gonna fire this shit up, man. They better not do anything to was it Sybil the hot one, or I'm gonna fucking shit a biscuit. Anyway, <laughs> um, but yeah, no. So like, I wanted to see because I was just curious to see what he the, what he was gonna do next. Because like I said, I liked his two other things, and but like. He directs weird in this movie. For some reason, when every like whenever anyone has a close up, they're framed to the right side of the screen for no reason consistently throughout the entire movie. So you just have the left side of the screen is empty, not just kind of like just focused to the right or anything like that, but just like just like a black backdrop. And like that's a weird kind of creative decision. And towards the end of the movie, you can tell they they were running out of budget because like they start showing off the sets less and less, and it just it gets a, feels just a little cheap and junky towards the end. But he says that the Hooper said in interviews that the intense close-ups were a, were a conscious choice because it just upped the emotionalism of every scene. Which, but I've heard it's very repetitive, though. Yeah, but the fact that the close-ups were all framed exactly the same way it's on the right side of the right. screen. But the first big close-up scene you get is Anne Hathaway. She sings her one big song, I Wish I Had Some Cough Drops. <laughs> that's the song. That's the song. Who can forget? And so, that like, was my audition scene the, in college theater. <laughs> I the, wish I had some cough oh, drops. I went to Seven Eleven and they only had menthol and I wanted eucalyptus. I'm dying in the street. Luden cherry. Luden cherry. Um, but she only has, she has one song, but like, uh, that this, the one, his, his one penchants for having strangely framed close-ups really pays off with Anne Hathaway's number because uh, her number is done all in one take, super fucking close-up. It's just interesting, too, because, like, her, the costume she's wearing, it's kind of a dress that cuts off right above the tits. And so, well, I'm just saying, but, like, she's essentially naked from the shoulders up, and it's framed in where, like, she's practically, she's practically bald, dirty, and naked from, like, because she's... It's a this, very vulnerable. It's very vulnerable. And the camera's, like, she's practically rubbing her nose against the glass of the camera, but and I but would be, she, wouldn't that be hilarious if someone left a smudge? I could I mean, everyone's so stayed dirty with and the movie in this movie. I would be a bit surprised. But it really pays off dividends because, um, yeah, she that is one of the high, one of the best things I've seen in movies in a long time. Actually, is her number in that movie? Because uh, well, the other thing nice too. Uh, the other thing that makes uh, Les Mis special, I guess, this production of it was the fact that they recorded all the songs live on stage instead of having everyone coming and come in and do a cast album before beforehand for everyone to lip sync to uh, while filming the movie, uh, I guess they actually filmed everyone live while they're actually on the set. And so everyone... Right, everybody, there's no... Uh, people, for the most part, sang right into the camera. Yeah, which yeah. actually, I, I've been listening so to... The sound was recorded, captured on set. Yeah, I was listening to some uh, some bits and pieces from the soundtrack, from the, from the from the movie soundtrack, and it's great too, because you actually hear like production audio in the background of, 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 of the songs. Like there's the one song, uh, there's, there's a big production number that someone sings in the rain. And you can hear it's just the production sound of just like the rain in the in the you know it's it's not recorded very well right but at least it sounds real because it's just a girl singing in the rain and they just recorded it that way and, it, and like How I said is Russell Crowe Russell Crowe he's okay I forgot that he had a band so I guess that justifies why he could be in a musical like this um but he he's you know, he's Russell Crowe he's fat. He's an, he's 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 fat in a policeman's outfit, just kind of growling at everybody. Remember when Russell Crowe was awesome? But uh, yeah, remember right around Master and Commander, like Dark Side of the ago. World, when it was Master like, Commander, Gladiator. That was kind of like his high point, right? Master there. Master Commander is a movie that I wish more people had seen and talked about. Well, I, was, I love that movie. I was slipping out because this takes place in like it starts off in like France in 1805, which is the same time that Russell Crowe is blowing up the French people in Master Commander. I'm like, how can he be in two places at once? Same universe. He was blowing my fucking mind. He's got an evil twin out there fucking up shit. 
Yeah, he's fighting Wolverine. And singing. Uh, but no, seen... the Anne Hathaway thing is crazy because uh, the recording technique, because her number her number is obviously written to be, like, if you were to, to see Anne Hathaway's big uh, solo number in the theater, she would have to be, you know, essentially, like, like shooting at the rafters, like, really projecting. And the fact that, like, it's a film, and they they filmed it live on stage and recorded the uh, the, the audio live on stage, like, she's very quiet, so it's, like, very intimate, aside from just the fact that, like, the camera's uh, close-up. It just creates, like, this intimate performance you would never get on the stage. They actually take advantage of the fact that it's a filmed version of a right. musical in the best way possible. But you hated the larger movie. But, yeah, no, like I said, yeah, the, the movie's super maudlin, the musical numbers aren't actually that great, but her, like, there's there's one moment of alchemy in that movie that were, that, like, uh, Anne Hathaway and Tom Hooper uh, managed to catch something real, but the rest of the movie's just a big, eh. Yeah, big wet fart. Oh, I'm sorry to hear uh, that. So, yeah, if you're going to go see Les Mis, uh, wait until Anne Hathaway dies. You've seen the best part of the movie. Go sneak in a Django Unchained. Okay. That yeah. sounds like a as good a recommendation. Review. I think you should put that on the DVD box. Yeah. I know. Seriously. <laughs> yeah. uh, anything else going on with you? Uh, no. Yeah. I, brought, I brought a list of movies I like this year, if you yeah. want to read it. Well, we can t- we can take a break and we'll come back and talk about our... Oh, the, other, the, the only other things I've been doing is I've been reading three books this week. I have a book about the art and making of Peanuts Animation. Which is a great book that's all about uh, the oh, peanuts, wow. the peanuts TV specials. Yeah, I used to have an I used to have an old version of this book when I was a kid. Yeah. Because uh, yeah, the the yeah, I actually think I may have had this oh, book fantastic. when I was a kid. Yeah. This is this looks like it's a repackaging of a book I enjoyed when I was uh, yeah. younger. Yeah, it has all a bunch of like production art of like cells and things like that from like the that how Bill Melendez. Christmas Charlie yeah, yeah and all that stuff yeah. The um yeah I, I Charlie man, Brown Christmas it's a great pumpkin God, Charlie Brown I love Brown. those peanut specials when I was a kid what was yeah. one was your favorite uh, you know one of the first movies I ever saw as a kid was they made a theatrical film called Bon Voyage Charlie Brown I think they, yeah, which they talk about back. in here yeah which uh, Charlie Brown goes to a chateau in France and Anne Hathaway dies in that too she keeps on dying in France <laughs> in all these movies I've seen uh but that's the first people don't one. know this but Charlie Brown could actually sing and dance and this was a great way to for him to get back to his Broadway <laughs> yeah, exactly. roots exactly. But I remember seeing that. I saw that in The Great Muppet Keeper, like, on the same weekend with my grandparents when I was, like, five. Because I think those both of those came out, like, 1980. Uh, but no, I still, I don't know, it's a tough switch between it. It's just like everyone else's favorites. It's either uh, uh, it's uh, Charlie Brown Christmas or Great Pumpkin. I haven't seen this in forever, but I used to be very fond of Snoopy Come Home. Which one Oh, they talk about it here where that's the last theatrical one. Yeah. Where Snoopy... Snoopy, like, goes off to find his owner. His original owner, his original was some owner. like some little girl who had to give him up because she moved into an apartment that I, didn't allow dogs or something. Yeah, I was adopted, so you know this spoke to me on a very personal. Yeah. No, that's Aww. not why. But I just well, got, I can see that being a thing. I just really I remember the little theme song that Snoopy, Snoopy, Aww. Snoopy. Did you want to borrow this because they talk about like the writing of the even oh, I forgot. They got I actually someone... would be interested in borrowing this. And the funny thing is, is Charlie Brown's animated specials are. Frankly, many of them are kind of horribly animated. Yeah. Well, but, like, <laughs> but they but they just work because there's they... this great mix of of these weird elements. These kids are actually reading the adult dialogue. Yeah. Uh, the, Which was the, rare for that time. I mean, even rare these days. The Garaldi yeah. score is really an un, it's it's so part of the culture now. You don't realize now appreciate now what an unconventional choice that was yeah. to score a cartoon in like the 50s when they started putting these out yeah or the 60s when they started putting these out yeah yeah the sherman brothers the guys who wrote the music for mary poppins they're the ones who wrote the songs for uh snoopy go home they talk about that in here like they have a whole big interview with these guys really yeah well also the rest of this movie is actually this must be a more recent amended version because they uh 
a lot of this book, they spend a lot of time talking to guys who've worked on The Simpsons and at Pixar about how these uh, shorts have influenced uh, Pixar and The Simpsons output and stuff, too. It's, it's really oh, I'm not surprised to hear that. They're really influential, and frankly, yeah. even where they're, I think, come up short sometimes in animation, they're always... There was an um, there was an emotional maturity to them that was kind of bizarre. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's the, so much of those shorts, like just like the just like the the comic strip itself, kind of like are about failure. Itself, yeah. yeah, and trying to prepare kids for failure. I know. Like, we we, really, we used to release huge TV specials for children about animated failure that weren't the Venture Brothers. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, that's one nice thing about the Venture Brothers. At least you know somebody's out there carrying the the failure torch. But oh, the thing I want to recommend to people that yeah. I've been watching um, that is great is Danger 5. Yeah. Uh, Danger 5. <laughs> add this to the show notes. Danger 5 just got... I'll send you links later, but Danger 5 Man. just got linked up on Hulu. Danger 5 is an Australian TV series that um, is essentially a bizarre alternate history pulp World War II. It's shot with that harsh lighting like a 60s TV series. So it looks like The Hobbit. Yeah, and um, in, it looks like forty-eight frames per second. Hobbit. Yeah. It's shot with the. It's shot in the sort of sixties bright TV lighting. It mixes. The, it's this bizarre mix of like spaghetti westerns and um, everybody. I think everybody's dialogue is dubbed. Yeah. Um, and they're all the, they're these alternate World War Twos. Like um, the first episode, which is on Hulu now. Uh, hold on, I'll have to look it up. It's almost, it's almost like if you had uh, Jerry Anderson and Sid and Marty Croft make. A, a live bit. live action Aqua Teen Hunger Force. Yeah, go. It, it has uh, not Aqua Teen Hunger Force. Uh, C Lab Twenty Twelve or whatever that. That's actually, what I'm my stepdaughter yeah. compared it to C Lab Twenty Twelve in tone uh, yeah. when I showed her an episode, and she, um, it does. It has like stop motion animation. It has. Um, it's about these five sort of commandos who are living in a Jerry Anderson style house, drinking martinis all the time, who get assigned to do some mission by a by a guy wearing a the outfit from the prisoner with an eagle's head. Yeah. Who says, do this, oh, and kill Hitler. Are they fighting Hitler every episode? Every episode. And, he, and Hitler's played by a guy who looks nothing like Hitler. Well, but he's got the Hitler and, mustache. And every, yeah. at the end of every episode, I, I guess he jumps out a plate glass window. I'm oh, sure that's how the he same escapes. shot. That's like in the Pokemon cartoon when Team Rocky gets blasted off in space. That's right. how he just exits every episode. But that looks... I had never heard about that until uh, Mike just showed me the trailer for this just a couple minutes ago. Yeah. and, and Or a couple minutes before we started broadcasting. It's an Australian TV series, and basically Hulu just got the license to show it here. Yeah. And um, I highly recommend it. It is, it is, it is basically pulp. Ma it's pulp magazines and pulp men's adventure magazines turned into a really, really spoofy, weird TV show. Again, which was in of itself a little bit like the Venture Brothers too, where it's kind of like the first a retro. But this is live action though. Yeah, it's no. There's a there, right now. Yeah. You can go online to their on YouTube and watch the prequel series, which is the Diamond Girls, <laughs> which is in which Hitler has created this power. He's using this diamond powder. To have uh, his female bodyguard sniff the powder and become bulletproof, and get like silvery gray skin. That sounds great. That and sounds so like when, when they see in the sixties, yeah. And for some reason, Tarantino's going to make a movie out of this next year. Yeah. And, and for some reason, the show thinks it's really, really funny to have people just machine gunned at random. So like our heroes try and machine gun the Diamond Girls. Yeah. And it ricochets off and kills everybody else in the bar, and they don't care. They just go on just about their yeah, business. I just want to do a double feature of this in Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. Uh, the, the episode that's on Hulu now is called I Danced for Hitler. 
Does Hitler... And, and, it's, and I'm going to read this off Wikipedia. It's a team of Nazi zeppelins abducts the Eiffel Tower and Danger Fight heads to Paris to investigate. And the Paris they have is just like little sets. It almost looks like a like Team America World Police. Stuff. Yeah. Well, like all the Paris. airplanes and stuff are all like like little like model airplanes on wires and shit. Yeah. Like it's, it's totally one of those kind of like retro kind of, yeah. But so they, they're trying to figure out why Hitler's stealing world monuments. At the same time, a bunch of uh, characters are, are abducted to become part of Hitler's personal dance troupe for his birthday party that's being put on by Goebbels. Fucking ridiculous, um, the, yeah. the show's gotten, actually, interestingly, some Tarantino the same kind of heat Tarantino gets where people have said it trivializes, um, you know, real things that happened in World War II, to which I reply, unless unless in World War II, somebody fought characters with dinosaur heads, I think we're okay. Yeah, it's it's just, it's an overheated comedy. And And a culture where... What I've seen is brilliant. (sighs) I highly recommend it. And a culture where Abraham, uh, Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter... right. I, it's it's sort of living in the same place as that, except it's much much funnier. Oh man, I should have gone because like I should have gone to like because like I said, I was disappointed. Lay Miz, I should have gone to see Lincoln instead, and then my brain would have been completely torn apart by jumping from Django Unchained. Yeah, Django Unchained and, and Lincoln, to Lincoln is because the, they're both they're, they're, they're both taking place in the same era. It's flip sides of the same kind they're of both cultural about coin. As realistic too. Well, who knows? Lincoln crying on top of the Lincoln Memorial. I'm dead. I can't get past Daniel. I haven't seen. That's another one I haven't seen before. I did my year end, and and I uh, I'm embarrassed by that. But one of the things I can't get past in the commercials is Daniel Stern. Daniel Day Lewis's. Oh, voice. I think Daniel Stern from the Wonder Years. Yeah, it's... I thought it was all him t- talking about what like Abraham Lincoln was a kid. Right. And Abraham Lincoln's first crush. Have you heard Daniel Day Lewis's voice in that though? It sounds weird. It, it's like it does not sound what I the cartoon am it is. clothed in immense power. <laughs> I am yeah. I am Abraham Lincoln. Because well, my my interpretation of what Lincoln should sound like was f- uh, shaped by uh, Ken Burns' Civil War, where they had what's right. his name from C- uh, from Law and Order. The thing that people, the only reliable uh, thing we have, uh, apparently his voice was a little on yeah. the high pitch side. Well, no one knows, or at least, uh, no one really. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, apparently, like... one of Lincoln's descendants said the closest that they it's got was the actor yeah. Raymond Massey sounded a lot like Lincoln. Wow. Um, or I guess he was a TV announcer, Raymond Massey. I can't remember, yeah. but but he sounded a lot like Lincoln. But Lewis says that's in the research. But he was yeah, a tall, he's like reedy guy. It makes sense he wouldn't be all baritone and shit. He was like lying, that. but he's like, I am clothed in immense power. I am Abraham Lincoln. Oh, man, you know, I am I in was, a Steven Spielberg movie. I was hyped for a new Steven Spielberg movie with a score by John Williams, but then. Like you know what? Actually, even aside from the fact that Daniel Day Lewis sounds like he's selling uh, uh, ice cream from a uh, from a truck, uh, is the fact that uh, like the the first trailers were so obviously like Oscar baity. Like this is an important film. <laughs> Not that I expected it was they were gonna sell like a fucking rom com or something like that, but it was so like so self serious and like. I think that Daniel Day Lewis uh, actually modeled his voice on when you go up like five octaves. Oh my god! Hey guys, I got this Emancipation Proclamation. Ah, we should get uh, Jamie Foxx to come and sign it and shoot. Oh, uh, shoot. That's the other thing everyone's been talking about. Django Unchained is like re- revisionist history. Is it just because black people blow up a plantation? I mean, but it's not like spoiler they, alert. But it's not like the spoilers. Um, it definitely. I mean, Django wins. One of the things that that Tarantino's been doing is he's been. Um, his whole thing, and he says he wants to do another one of these, actually. Yeah, Killer Crow. Uh, yeah. yeah, Killer Crow. Uh, he wants to give... He, he basically is giving a trilogy... He says he's doing an official trilogy where he's giving historically victimized groups revenge stories. Yeah. Pulp revenge stories. Which is, you know, fascinating. Um, so, yeah, no. But yeah, did, go check out Danger 5. I could not recommend it more. Are there black highly. people in it? Uh, 
How, how would we link that to the conversation? I don't know. Is Christoph Waltz in it? Uh, no. No. But he probably would fit right in. Okay. Yeah. Oh, man, Tom Wopat from the Dukes of Hazard, he's in it? It's got Don Johnson. I didn't re- like. I did not recognize any. Tom Wopat is in Django Unchained. Yeah, what's his name from the Dukes? I know that uh, Don Johnson's in it. Yeah, which I didn't re- recognize. I like. I saw Don Johnson's name in the credits, and I still didn't recognize him when he showed up. He's playing old white Colonel guy. He's all like, he's like the KFC dude. He's playing Colonel Sanders. Yeah, practically. Yeah, you expect him like in a, like a turquoise shirt and no. Well, socks. this really is like a uh, a, a grindhouse reunion. That's what I'm saying. Johnson, yeah. I think, was in Grindhouse. Oh, was he? Oh, Tom Savini's well, in this too, and Tom Savini was in that stuff. And Zoe Bell actually shows up for ten seconds too. Oh wow. Yeah. Huh. But anyway, I'm gonna shut up. Also, the guy who was in the original Django movie shows up for ten seconds because Tarantino just said, "I like these movies called Django. I'm going to make a pseudo sequel called Django Unchained for no reason." So yeah. Anyway, we'll we'll shut up and stop talking about. Oh my! Uh, the other the other two movies I was talking about three books I was reading this week. The other one is Imagine Illust- uh, Imagination Illustrated, which is a book about the 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 journal that Jim Henson kept for thirty years from wow. the mid uh, was it the mid sixties to uh, nineteen ninety. Wow. Uh, where he just documents everything he did for thirty years. Where he just talks about like, oh, today met Frank Oz for the first time. Oh, we started work on this little thing called Sesame Street. That's a great book. And I am reading the History of the Lord of the Rings books, which talk about just essentially just the writing of the Lord of the Rings. Wow. Um, Is it a... It's, it's got his name on it. Book. Did he write it? Uh, it's edited by his son, Christopher Tolkien. So this is just his process of making... <sighs> yeah. I mean, the first the first chapter, the first couple pages is, is, is the first handwritten page that uh, Tolkien uh, wrote of... What was the original? It was called, like, A Long-Awaited Birthday, Bilbo Loves Soup. This is the story of the next adventure of Bilbo Bag. It's all handwritten, which is crazy, because, like, Tolkien's handwritten. The original title of The Hobbit was Bilbo Loves Soup. Bilbo Loves Soup, and then he sang it. (laughs) And then Anne Hathaway dies. I need some soup. I can't remember. Bilbo Bag. Anyway, yes, that's that's how The Hobbit is. (laughs) talking about i don't know uh okay we'll 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 take a break we'll come back yeah instead of doing the uh, usual geek week in review we will just be coming back to talk about yeah uh, 2012 and movies movies we loved in 2012 yeah maybe movies we hated or were disappointed by or just didn't see or just didn't see we may just make up shit we just may be listing movies yeah i like here's a movie that came out i love zardoz we'll be back I love that, that while we, in the one minute that we didn't record, you told me about how uh, there are, are women who are cosplaying as Zardoz. Sexy Zardoz! As no to one... which I replied, is there any other kind of Zardoz? Oh, this is true, yeah. There is no other kind of Zardoz. Oh, God. Man, for people at home uh, who hasn't seen Zardoz, you should know that the penis is evil. Is it? Was that what it is? The penis is I, evil? Yeah, I don't, I, it's been a while, but it I, I do remember bullets? it has a terrific commentary track on the DVD yeah, where, I've never heard where I've John Borman essentially apologizes for the film the entire time. <laughs> John Borman, he's the same guy who did Excalibur? 
Yeah. Yeah. Excalibur, I think only... the Emerald Forest, I've uh, heard great Deliverance. Things... Oh, he did Deliverance? Oh, yeah. Jesus Christ. I've seen Deliverance then, but yeah, I've only seen that in Zardoz. I've heard great things about it. One of my uh, alcoholic friends in Pittsburgh, one of You've his You've never seen movies. Excalibur? No. But one of my what alcoholic kind friends of in Pittsburgh. Are you? That was his favorite movie. He would like react. I, I was, I'm assuming there's a scene where somebody takes Excalibur out of the water. He would reenact the scene. Yeah. Let the boy try. A... There's a great. There's a my, my friends and I used to. Uh, he didn't direct. I had, I had a friend who was a little obsessed with Excalibur. Really. And he used to oh, constantly be saying stuff all the time. Lines from the movie, which is like, "Ride the dragon's breath. Your lust will hold you up." And and like it sounds like notes from a D and D session, and, gameplay session. And yeah. uh, also, uh, we used to have a lot of fun with the foley because the scene where Arthur pulls the sword from the stone. Yeah. He always used to just for some reason he got obsessed with reenacting the foley behind, which was very basically fifteen people saying "Let the boy try," but then not always saying all of it. It was like "Let the boy try, let the boy let let boy let <laughs> try the try, let the boy." And he, and he just got really obsessed now with I that. Now I never have to see it, because you reenacted what seems to be everyone's favorite part from the film. If a boy pulled the sword from the stone, then a boy shall be king! I'm sorry, I'm, I know all these lines from when my friend was just obsessed with that movie. Uh, man, who made, who made... What's the movie about the dude who's a wolf? It's a replicant, and he's a wolf, and he's got a girlfriend who's Catwoman, and she's like a chicken, and they're always... One dude's the wolf, and the other lady's a Lady chicken. Hawk. All that, Lady Hawk. That's not by the same guy. The guy who's uh, the wolf. And because the that's it. Because with the soundtrack, the pew, kind of like Blade Runner, Evangelist, you want to be soundtrack. I like the like idea be... that she wasn't a hawk, but was instead a chicken. Chicken, <laughs> lady, chicken. lady chicken, Because she would have turned into a chicken during uh, the day. The How much less romantic would that have been? Who's the bully? Who's the bully chicken from the Warner Brothers cartoons? Wasn't he Lady Hawk? Foghorn Leghorn. No, he <laughs> was the he was. This was an extra from the Foghorn Leghorn cartoons. Oh, the Chicken Hawk. The Chicken. Oh, that's not what we're talking about. That's not the movie Chicken Hawk. We're not talking about. <laughs> chicken Hawk. Rucker Howard turns into a Chicken Hawk. He's like, yeah, I'm gonna beat you. See, I'm the big bully Chicken Hawk around here. See? What are we talking about? I don't know anymore. Andy, come back. We're dying without you. Annie, Annie, oh, Annie has in spirit left this podcast about. She has an left hour this ago. mortal plane. Yeah, she's she's home in Texas eating br- beef brisket. Good for her. She's probably wearing something that's checkerboard plaid. I've got family. Boots. I got family for, in Texas, and I got to tell you, I, I firmly believed they saved the best cuts of beef for themselves. Oh yeah. Did you know there's a beef brisket cart? It's right by Annie's new well, the house she just bought. Mm. It's like right up by like 50th and Foster. I can't remember what it's called. Annie gets food from there all the time. In fact, our uh, Game of the Year awards that we awarded, was it last week or two weeks ago? Uh, we, it was is a, a gold-plated beef brisket sandwich because they were so good from there. Oh man. That was my arbitrary decision. Annie was like why are you making a beef brisket sandwich? No one knows that we eat beef, uh, beef brisket while what, like recording the podcast. This is stupid. But I was like, man, the beef brisket is so good it belongs to be an award of it itself so that's supposed to be te- like it, annie says that's the best beef brisket she's had outside of texas ever well is, is, uh, is, is she's like, from texas that's, that's what i'm saying the standard for beef she in, says y'all yeah the standard for beef out in texas is higher i remember having uh ground beef patties in texas that tasted better than steaks i had in yeah, other exactly, states. Yeah, yeah i still believe they they saved the best so stuff for themselves. Uh, on top of our uh, best best uh movies of 2012 we're gonna be talking about our, our best steaks of 2012 oh man our best meats i actually have an answer to the best steak i ever had oh yeah yeah the oh. best steak i ever had <laughs> this is embarrassing i got a gift certificate for pazzo which is this restaurant in portland yeah. this very fancy i got this huge like gift certificate sounds like it's for schmucks already got a huge gift certificate it was it's an italian restaurant there it's pretty good but we went down there and we're going to spend the night in a hotel we got this huge gift certificate that allowed us to do that yeah and 
I blew you and your wife. It's not like you have multiple. Yeah, I blew a yeah. huge chunk of that certificate on the most expensive steak I could get my mitts on, which was what's like, an expensive? Is that like fifty dollars? Yeah, I got a fifty dollar cut of steak at Pazzo. That was the best steak I've ever had. It had like a, a peppercorn on it. And... Man, what did you do for Christmas dinner? This has had nothing to do with movies. What did you do? Because I Mac. Use a Big Mac. Yeah, no, that's so sad. A ravioli. I we make oh, our right. we make our own ravioli. So I forgot about ravioli. the Russell family ravioli, uh, homemade ravioli stuff. Yeah. What I did? Oh man, this is great. This all maybe only people in the UK will give a shit about this. I made Yorkshire pudding. Really? Do you know what this shit is? It's um haggis with pudding in it, right? I guess some fucking shit. I didn't know what it was until like Joshin. Had, we were looking at uh Cook's Illustrated videos on how to cook stuff. And he just randomly found one. We thought it was going to be about barbecue because it was about, like, roasting meat. Right. It turned out to be Yorkshire pudding. Yorkshire pudding is you just take, like, a pot roast. You just cook that. And then you take the juices and you mix them in with, like, essentially just, like, some eggs and some salt and some milk and flour. Let me guess. Did the British come up with this? Yeah! (laughs) But then you mix it up like a little cupcake thing and you cook that shit. And I made some of that for, for a Christmas dinner. It was one of the best things I ever had because, like, the fat... In, in, in the steak kind of fries the outside of the Yorkshire pudding. So it's almost like a carnival food where it's like this fried doughy stuff on the outside, but like good on the inside, bread. But like it has nothing to do with the steak. Like the pot roasting you make, you can just What do you much, do with the leftover roast? You just feed it to dogs or something. It's all just... I know, also puddings. I'm thinking it's going to be like jet, jet. Like I always thought puddings were a sweet thing. I didn't realize in the UK puddings are savory like yes. bread pies and shit. That's There's nothing the British won't make savory for you. Yeah, and the only reason I bring this up is it's it's only tangentially beef related because I made a beef roast right. and just used the juices for that in the Yorkshire pudding. That's that awesome. was one of the best meals I've ever made my, for myself in my life. Have you ever fantastic. thought about doing a cooking show, Bill? Oh, God. Maybe next week's podcast. What would I cook? All I cook is, like, ramen. Well, that's and very Swiss, hot right now. Swiss colony spread of cheese. <laughs> we'll call it the Swiss colony podcast <laughs> exactly. starting Bill Mudrin. Well, I'll just bring, bring, bring beef brisket from Annie's cart. Like all the time, oh, yeah. Man. I'll tell you That's what. Good. So anyway, 2012 movies. Oh yeah, want to talk about movies? Yeah. How do you want to do this? Because you actually brought a list of name your top a bunch ten of stuff movies. I liked. You know what? I drew up a list of all the movies I saw in theaters this year, and I didn't even come up like I starred all the ones that I thought were my favorites of the year, and I only I got less than ten actually. That's enough. Which I I've been so busy playing games this year, I just didn't see that much in the way of movies. We've been doing um, we've been talking for an hour. I'm sure. 10 is plenty. Yeah. 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 Well, so do you want to start with number 10 and work yeah, your I'll way just, up? Yeah, I'm not even going to na- number these. These are just oh, an okay. unsorted list of films that rocked me. And really, if we're being honest, it's like from January to about September yeah. oh, actually, 2012. Where's my iPad? Oh, it's right here. I can just read off of here. So, uh, let's see. I'm going to bring up my list of shit that I saw. You know, actually, I saw I did see a lot more movies this year than I thought. It's just not a lot of them were very good. This was a big, uh, this is a disappointing year for, for geek cinema. Where, um, in the year of the Avengers and Cabin in the Woods, really? Those are two. I mean, that's Joss Whedon. Joss Whedon almost exists as this little bubble off to himself, but like, no one liked Amazing Spider Man. Yeah. John Carter bombed. Although John Carter is not that <sighs> John bad. Carter's not a bad movie. It's an interesting flop. It's a total failure. It's not a good movie. But it is an entertaining It is entertaining, yeah. Failure. We saw it together, yeah. Mike took me to a crit- critic screening. We spent the whole time going. Movie doesn't work. It's completely bananas. But it's, I kind of what I like about it is it's totally bananas. It's like they got somebody from nineteen eighty, brought whoever like it's like who they got whoever made Flash Gordon right. brought them to the future brought them to the modern day and said, Hey, spend two hundred million dollars in five years of your time just making whatever movie you want. I made Flash Gordon or I made uh, John Carter of Mars. But yeah, between that and they what could else? not wrangle that story together. Basically, um, um, 
well, I'm trying to think what else. Like, wait, I, I tweeted about. That. Am I going to have to look at my own tweets? Well, you're right, though. I think about? Dark Knight Rises was kind of disappointing. Exactly. Yeah, that um, right there. I think The Hobbit on some level is kind of disappointing. A lot of, a lot of people disappointed in The Hobbit. Yeah. This was a, this was a year. If there is a theme to the year, it's a year when, other than like the Avengers, the big ticket movies, Prometheus. people were ex- Prometheus was a wildly that, that, disappointing. That's the cherry on top. So yeah, yeah. Th- this was a movie when the things that you thought were going to work that seemed like sure bets didn't. Yeah. And Whereas the Avengers, Nolan came on from Batman, that, yeah. Jackson back on on in the Lord of the Rings world, and um, and uh, Ridley Scott back in the Aliens universe and should have all still... been home runs, and they were all like at best base hits. I don't think any of them were terrible, like 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 aggressively terrible. I think they Prometheus were... was aggressively terrible. I think Prometheus is at least made like the weight, like the like technically and the special effects and the design is fantastic. But yeah, anytime anyone opens their mouth, it's it, like the characters are terrible, the plotting is atrocious. Prometheus is probably the worst of them all. Well, you've said you've seen that Blu-ray, right? That Blu-ray about the making of, where it basically is where a it's document a, of how it all goes wrong. It's a three and a half. Yeah, I don't know if it's just with the special collector's edition or if it's on all, all the Prometheus Blu-rays. But there was a three and a half hour long documentary which shows the uh, production of the movie relatively for a making of feature, pretty much warts and all. Oh yeah. Where they talked to like the original screenwriter John Space about how he was booted off because the studio just wanted a big name writer on the project. That's when they brought in David Lindelof. And even Lindelof is joking about, oh, yeah, everyone must hate me for my contributions to this movie. But I think this was, like, filmed and put together before the movie came out because, like... Uh, well, I've read it's, the Spice script of you. Yeah. It's and really good. It's, well... <laughs> it's really I'm, entertaining. Like, I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I'm convinced that... Uh, really, uh, I, they probably needed to tweak the ending, but it would actually He worked. came up with the whole plot and everything by himself. Like, all the, all the skeleton of the whole film... The spite script was, was works in a way that all that rewriting took away. Yeah. Well, it, let's put it this way: his script did, did not have pot smoking astronauts in it, right? Or biologists, whatever the hell they were. Um, no, I I still think that movie was just. I don't think Ridley Scott had any idea what he was doing with that movie, and the Prometheus Blu-ray bears me out on this because every movie, almost every movie Ridley Scott has made was made because Ridley Scott got the idea for something where he found a script that he thought was interesting and that he uh, brought to fruition. Uh, not to say that always meant every movie he's ever made has been good, but like even like Robin Hood, which is a bad movie, yes. stupid movie, that started off with the Sherwood script, which was this crazy idea of what if Robin Hood and the Sherwood... Wasn't it, was it, wasn't it was sheriff? called Nottingham. That's what it was. The, the script was called Nottingham, and it was apparently a much-beloved script in Hollywood. Yeah, it was going uh, around for years. Everyone's saying it was one of the best unproduced scripts in Hollywood. The idea was that the Sheriff of Nottingham was the hero and almost a Sherlock Holmes-like um, detective. Yeah, yeah that's what it was. And he was solving yeah. this work by this terrorist living in the woods who was Robin Hood. Yeah. And they essentially had done this brilliant thing where they reversed the roles, and, yeah, Ridley Scott optioned he, that. And, and he tortured it into with the rewrote it into something in which Robin Hood is fighting on a beach and there's the Magna Carta in there somewhere. For, and, and Robin Hood's old and fat for some reason. He's just, and he's like trying to make it out the, <laughs> Galadriel and, but it's, and there's that weird switched identity subplot. A little bit, but yeah, kind of. What was that about? That's what I'm saying. Yeah, it's, it's, you don't want to blame too much of Prometheus directly on Damon Lindelof because he was dealing with Ridley Scott who, well, anyway, so my, my, my whole point uh, is that Ridley Scott, he always has an interesting, he's, he, he always starts off working from an interesting idea outwards. With this, in, in the special features, they, they he, uh, Spaths talk about how he was, he had somehow got the attention of Ridley Scott, and Ridley Scott just said, hey, why don't you come up and have a little meeting with me? And supposedly they shot the shit for an hour or two. And at the end, Ridley Scott is like, hey, I would like you to, to write my next movie, which is going to be an alien movie. 
And so John Space is like, okay, well, what do you want it to be about? And Ridley Scott says, I don't know. I just need to make an alien movie. This is the only time I've ever heard Ridley Scott making a movie where there was no idea, where he just came out to a writer and said, hey, I just, I think this is. trying to dig himself out of his his movie jail. Yeah, because he he hasn't had a big hit since, uh, since, uh, what was it, Gladiator? Probably about that was like like no Black Hawk Down was huge. That was that was that that probably made money for what it was, but it wasn't like Gladiator made like a bazillion dollars. Black Hawk Down was more of a prestige movie, but I don't think this really made a shitload of money. But I think this is like this is his one thing where he I think Ridley Scott is smart enough to realize that like I think he was sat down and just realized he needed a hit, and the easiest way to do it would be going back to science fiction fiction and making an alien movie like everyone was begging him to. So I think I think the whole genesis of Prometheus was a hell of a lot more mercenarial than everyone believes, and I think that's that's a problem with the movie where Ridley Scott wasn't that invested in it, and 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 also combined with his uh, American Gangster to... did pretty well, yeah, but still not like. Um, but that's probably the last thing he had, yeah. that made a lot of money. I think Ridley Scott is kind of like in that same space like where Francis Ford Coppola was when he made The Godfather Part Three, where he had made a bunch of personal projects that didn't necessarily do that well but then like he was like oh like Ridley Scott or uh Francois Coppola 20 years ago or th- when the hell did- Coppola got made Godfather 3 specifically to get out of Hawk that he had gotten into with American Zoetrope yeah exactly, he admits yeah. this now he said I made it to basically dig myself out of a massive financial hole think- nowadays he supports himself with a wine business <laughs> yeah I know and he makes a movie if he wants to but, although you yeah. know he's making something right now and he said uh, Coppola has actually got a deal he's making a giant epic right is now is this a science fiction thing or is this his it's big not new york Megalo- thing I, I don't think it's megalopolis it's okay. a big new york thing but i think i'm guessing it's going to inter- incorporate elements of megalopolis but do you know the what he, he said in interviews i no. have an investor with infinite resources oh i heard about this i wonder who this could i be. think yeah who could who, who could just could be sold a star of wars his. who could yeah. be a really good friend of his who was his men was a mentor who to whom he was a mentor who just made like Turns two out, billion bucks yeah friends of coppola is not making a movie he's making his own city where in, yeah, he's gonna make his own like gangster disneyland i would love it if um, george lucas's final act as a producer i don't know if this is true but i would love would it if his final perfect. act as a producer was to go make megalopolis or whatever you want francis ford coppola with this... as much money as yeah. you want i mean francis ford coppola gave lucas a bunch of his first early breaks like mm-hmm. he he let lucas work on uh like on on the godfather and all kinds of stuff it'd be great if george lucas ends of his filming filmmaking career just by saying hey you know what if it weren't for you i wouldn't be here here's a shitload of money just go crazy that'd be amazing so we'll, we'll to, see what I'd happens to see there coppola get one last crack at making something huge and crazy yeah uh but yeah apparently that's happening yeah. And, oh, that would be fantastic, yeah. And uh, But yeah, no, Lucas first met Coppola when he was shooting, was uh, the making a documentary of the Rain People. Yeah, yeah, that's what it was, yeah. Yeah. All right, well, so... That has nothing to do with our top no, ten movies. Wow. But you know, we were just talking about disappointments of the year. It was a very... I, that's my theory of why Prometheus kind of was already kind of behind the eight ball to begin with, because... Uh, because Ridley Scott was not invested that much in the project. And it kind of tied into something that was really driving me nuts this year, which was, um, while I think this has been a very good year for movies, um, I think that there's also been this scourge of brand-driven entertainment that's sort of taken over. Uh, You know, it's how you get a movie like Battleship, or why you get reboots that happen just a few years after the last movie was made. And Um, and, and, and everything is a secret. I mean, I think there's a lot of amazing filmmaking happening on television. Yeah. Oh, that's the terrible thing. That's why, like, when we were talking, like, I was kind of needling you about your favorite TV stuff we could also talk about today, because that's actually, when it comes to, like, original entertainment right now, TVs is, like, where you want to go. Yeah, well, yeah, that's where the original stuff for grown-ups is. And, frankly, mobile devices have also conditioned us. The, the, The fact that you can now download 
TV shows like you used to be able to do, you know, MP3s or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Means that we have con- and DVDs and downloads and and mobile devices have conditioned us to now consume television, filmed entertainment like novels. Yeah. So that's and that's and incredibly, television has stepped up its game to match that. Yeah. Um, the Cineplex though is in a different state because the Cineplex to compete is getting more and more spectacular. And therefore, there's more money on the table. Therefore, they're taking fewer story risks. Yeah, therefore, they, they're, they're doing remakes and yeah. repackagings of things. Although there have also been a lot of wonderful year-end films, I gather, because I haven't seen a well, bunch of them Well, still yet. indie films are still flourishing, but the big budget movies are just kind of atrophying right now. They're 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 like I mean, big budget movies are oh, always been known for being mostly sequels and right. remakes and stuff. But right now, it's to the point where it's really becoming a self-parody, where you've got movies like Battleship and The Smurfs Two. And yeah. you know all it's this all kind of known weird properties. shit, like like Dark Shadows, like yeah. Tim Burton kind of shitting out like kind of like a really cynical remake of a soap opera from forty years ago. A very just, weird like, combination of trying to be gothic horror and Beetlejuice and like seventies spoof, and yeah. like it didn't have a consistent tone of voice. What do you think happened with the uh, Christopher Nolan and the Dark Knight there? Do you just, think he really just had everything he wanted to say with uh, Inception, and so he just kind of like shat out? Uh, the Dark Knight, because for Dark Knight, for some reason, just isn't as focused as anything else he's done. I don't think the Dark Knight was shut out. I don't. I think it was Dark Knight made, Rises. I mean, yeah. Dark Knight Rises. I think was made with complete conviction. Yeah. I, I was actually having a long conversation with this with a friend of mine uh, the other day, and and what he said, which I think is true, is that I think the movie you can't say that movie's not ambitious. No, 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 no. Um, that's what, what it's not like he got lazy, but there's something. The problem with... is he just couldn't wrap his hands around the movie. Yeah. Wrap his, what my friend said, which I thought was perfect, is Nolan just can't quite wrap his arms around the movie. Yeah. He's. I think he either had. I, I think he had a good idea, and then he made some strange choices, like with the way Hardy did his voice, and yeah. he didn't. It was going to be tough to top the Dark Knight anyway. But so what the what he tried to do is make an even vaster film about a city. Yeah. Which is the Dark Knight. Which is interesting, is like but that. it's hard to tell like But a, the Dark Knight an, Rises an emotionally compelling Yeah. And yeah. he also made a and I think it's more he, abstract, like a lot of the things it's, it's it's dealing with. I think he also made one critical mistake, uh which is a well, I don't know. Mistake may not be the right word, but he made a choice that I don't agree with. Mm-hmm. Which is that he he took us out of Gotham City. He sets up the situation where Gotham City is supposed to be this pressure cooker, That's what and then he like, takes the protagonist a... out of it for three months. Yeah, and suddenly your story splits between these two stories well, that have very little to do with each other. There's also that, and the which wrecks all the tension in the movie. The suspension of disbelief that the audience, the leaps of suspension of disbelief that the audience has to take in order to believe that like Gotham City is just stranded by itself for three months right. without the United States government stepping in. But they send in that one helping. that one team of guys. Yeah, one team of guys, and also like the fact the entire police department is somehow like trapped all at one time beneath the sewers but not killed for three and when months. they come out their uniforms are clean yeah that's what i'm saying there's a <laughs> lot of stuff in there where like it's not it's not nearly as immaculately immaculately as plotted as no one's right. other movies it seems like it was one of those things where like this movie was he kind of like biffed on those things where he was like i will we'll just, we'll just trust that the audience will just accept this and a lot of times the audience didn't that's a, like a lot of the reason why the 
people couldn't get in the movie because there were basic plotting issues like that, where it's not even a matter of silly voice by Bane, by Bane or anything like that. But yeah, it's, it's hard to engage in a story when there's shit going on where you're like, wait, what's going on? Wait, how's that working? It's a loose, like, it's, yeah. it's funny. Who's, it's clean, a... who's picking up all the garbage in Gotham for three months? Like, how is, like, is everyone still going to work? Even though you've got like six million in the city, six million people in the city who are still living there? Like, what's, like, yeah. He didn't wrap his head uh, fully around the implications of what he had constructed. And, yeah. I, and I think that that is a, always a function with these guys. Not of, I think his ambition was huge. I think he just ran out of time. Yeah. Um, I think what I happens that, is they yeah. get release dates and then they run out of time to figure it out. And yeah. so they have to go with what they have. I wonder how, like, if he had, like, an extra year or even six months to kind of, like, in editing, just kind of patch things up a little bit and just kind of, like, quicken things and kind of, like, patch over some of the plot holes. And, and... But there are things I like about the Dark Knight No, Dark Knight! I really like it's Anne not Hathaway. T- like I said, it's not a bad... Again, that's second year... This is the movie where she stole both movies that she was in. Yeah. Yeah, Anne Hathaway was surprisingly awesome. She was the best part of that goddamn movie. Yeah. Yeah. Also, weirdly, they showed a lot of... Uh, this is another thing I wonder if it's a factor. That there was a lot of Batman in the daytime. Yeah. And that suit loses a tremendous amount of its power when there's light. When you're just fighting in daylight in the snow on the steps it's of just not Gotham as cool. Bay. It just doesn't look as cool. Yeah. Oh, I forgot also about how, like, in that movie, they have the whole thing where, like, Bane intentionally fucks up the stock market by, like, sending a bunch of goons in with guns into the stock market to like make some like bad transactions and it's in the papers that he's done this but for some reason the stock market allows all those bad, bad transactions to stand and like disrupt Bruce the Wayne economy. is ruined there's no federal yeah, and it's yeah. Just kinda like... there's a lot of points where in that movie unlike in his other films and maybe he just edits so well in the other ones that you don't notice but in this one yeah, there's more the like of hand wasn't the movie quite as deft, yeah. begged you to ask questions of it like why like follow-up questions yeah and the same thing happened with prometheus these movies were not constructed in a way i mean all movies on some level contain a tremendous amount of illogic the, the dark knight every, they, they suddenly decide to use everyone's phone cell phones as bat sonars that doesn't make any sense but you're so caught up in it by then right. that's that's if that's the biggest uh logical leap you have to make then that's not so bad but yeah anyway you were saying yeah no no i mean it, the, the, the there were a lot of movies this year that had giant chasms in their construction that you made you look i mean like when you're watching like the 2009 abram star trek you're so carried along by the characters and the sort of propulsion of the thing that you don't really notice how ultimately quite nonsensical that movie is yeah later you might but honestly you're you're so but in into that the, moment you're when invested. you're in the theater yeah exactly, and you yeah. remain invested and in this one i for some reason like prometheus and dark knight rises Something there was something about the films and the way they were made that sort of gave you room to suspend your or to not suspend your disbelief. Yeah, because it's not necessarily character problems; questions. it's just plotting problems. Or either that maybe the characters weren't strong enough. Like in Prometheus, not, like there were a lot of there 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 are some like r- like just irrational daddy issues slathered all over right. the place that really don't. There's nowhere to hang harmonize your Harmonize correctly. Yeah, exactly. And like the characters aren't in- interesting enough to like drag you over uh, to, to to let you make those leaps of. Of, of storytelling but yeah it's it's yeah i don't know it's but, that was an interesting year though like all these films kind of like kind of farting themselves to death it was the, it was another one of those years that kind of like 1999 when the phantom menace came out where yeah. you have to go what's the lesson oh the lesson is don't have blind faith in anyone yeah. everybody is fallible which is a, kind of a sad lesson to take from movies which you actually you should also even but just it know was that also a year with, of but... neat surprises um actually uh what, what i what you love about cinema is when it surprises you uh, two of the movies I loved this year were Magic Mike and um, Twenty One Jump Street. Which and I, if heard, you had yeah. told me if you had told me a year ago that Channing Tatum 
would give two of my favorite performances. Was he in 21 Jump Street? He's hilarious in 21 Jump Street. Oh, I had no idea, because I always saw him in Haywire this year, and he bored the shit out of me. Oh, he's fine in Haywire, but the thing yeah. is, is that he has this great year where he's made, um, in 21 Jump Street, he's hilarious. He's the funniest thing in the movie. Who are the two main leads? In, is it's it Jonah Hill, Hill and, and Channing Tatum. Wow, that and, sounds like a potential recipe for disaster, but at it's least not. for me, yeah. I thought so, too. I was like, well, okay. But 21 then... Jump Street, that's the same guys who did like Clone High and Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, right? Mm-hmm. So th- those guys are, at least the creators, known to be funny motherfuckers. But the funniest moment for me in movies all year was when Channing Tatum took a bunch of drugs... To prove that he was not an undercover cop. And then he and Jonah Hill go through their school day. And at one point, Channing Tatum busts into a high school band practice and yells, Fuck Miles Davis! And jumps (laughs) through a gong. That is the funniest thing I saw in movies all year. was Channing Tatum yelling, Fuck Miles Davis! And jumping through a gong. Fuck, I'll have to see that. Yeah, no, that sounds fantastic. It's worth worth writing. Those writers, that that writing and directing team of that movie are fucking fantastic. Well, that's kind of like... that's Although that's funny that like that was a good movie, but that's one of the rare brand kind of extensions that actually worked out this year where again that's like a re like a cheeky remake of this like 1980s tv series that was done it's kind of like but they're also commenting to some degree on that whole concept of the remake yeah well it's the counterbalance to dark shadows which that was a cheeky remake of an old tv series done this was much more um this was done in a much more confident and funny i mean the thing bottom line is that when people go, how dare they be cheeky? It's like, I don't mind cheeky if it's funny. Yeah. If the jokes work. And in, in, in 21 Jump Street, the jokes connect. It's great. You should check it out. You'd like it, I think. Um, it's also uh, a completely unhinged, which I know you love. Oh, no, yeah. That's my favorite thing as well. So, yeah, Magic Mike is good, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, Magic Mike, I just watched that last night. Is that Soderbergh? That's also Soderbergh, yeah. who did Haywire as well. See, this doesn't help me, because like, I saw Haywire in theaters, and I watched Haywire a second time just a couple weeks ago, right after watching uh, Out of Sight for the first time, because that was on Netflix. Yeah. And I've always heard of people raving about Out of Sight, and I know that's Soderbergh, and Soderbergh makes good movies. Out of Sight is great. And uh, then I saw, of course, because Netflix being Netflix, the moment I'm done with Out of Sight, uh, it says, oh, if you like this, you should totally watch Haywire. Yeah. And I was like, okay, well, I'll fire it up again, just because that's his most recent film. I'll just, like, just, 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 just to, just to... Just as a what's a, to contrast with what I just sure. saw, I'm just curious to see. And man, the leap between uh, the great uh, uh, chemistry between um, Batman, George Clooney, and Made in Manhattan. Uh, yeah, yeah, George Clooney and uh, Jennifer Lopez. Jennifer Lopez contrasted the Gina Carano and uh, Magic Mike in Haywire are just like they're like dead fish compared to like. Yeah, I never thought I'd be like. I think well, I think they movies have very different goals. I know. I mean, again, I Out of Sight is an Elmore Leonard. But they're both Soderbergh movies. That's the only reason I'm even preparing this. Out of Sight is an Elmore. Well, it also has you know Lem Dobbs. I think wrote both of them, and also it has the same. Yeah, he, he, Soderbergh has a serious composer and a light yeah. composer he works with. Well, him. he's got two different. Mo- he's got a bunch of different different modes too. You can't directly compare one to Soderbergh. Soderbergh is weird because you're gonna he, go crazy because it's not like Soderbergh is weird because he's a great director, but he's also a total stylistic chameleon. He'll try on a different. Well, it's like the vibes that way. In yeah. everything. Yeah. He does, um, and but I thought I thought Haywire was great. I thought yeah. that Gina Carano, um, he, you know how that worked, right? He saw her doing an MMA thing, and he was like, "She's got a great look and a great vibe." And then he built the whole movie around her, basically. Yeah. And um, and and I think that she is an amazing action heroine presence in the sense that she's just intensely physical in a way that I think a lot of, um, you know, when you when you see like, uh, um. Angelina Jolie doing salt, and you're like, yeah. why didn't her arm break off when she karate chopped that guy? Um, 
I, I got the feeling that with Gina Carano, I was like, oh, that really looked like that hurt. Yeah. And she did a lot of her own stunts. There's a real physicality to. to she's not a great actress, but she's a great physical actor. She's a great presence. Yeah. And and she's almost like the, she's almost like the modern day female uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger that way. We're not not necessarily the the, the best actor, right. but she's great. Like she's a great film like film presence. The presence, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you know it's why like you know it's why. You and like... he pointed out that there's no reason why she shouldn't play a Terminator someday. Well, you know she's going to be in um, the next Fast and the Furious movie, which is fantastic. That's great. Yeah, she that, and that's probably the, the movie she should be in. Yeah. She and the Rock are going to be in it together, which I'm very excited. They're going to have a good time throwing each other through play glass windows. You're damn right. Like, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, so I was, I was. Should we get into the films we love? Yeah. Um, Moonrise Kingdom was my. I would say that was probably my favorite. Movie I was I saw surprised this year. at how much I liked that movie. Uh, I think it's. I think it's Anderson's best movie. What's in a lot your of ways. What's your least favorite Anderson movie? I'm just kind of curious for what you're. Because everyone different has different. Everyone who likes Anderson tends to have different like likes. I like dislikes. all of his movies to varying degrees. I mean, I don't really think he's made a dud in the bunch. Oh, okay, I yeah. think if I was gonna say there's one that I that I carry around with me the least, it's probably Darjeeling Limited. But I still like Darjeeling Limited. I still haven't seen Darjeeling Limited because did I tell you about this? How I got the DVD and the, the Darjeeling Limited starts off with like a fifteen minute short film with uh, right. You hated that. You hated that. Yeah, we're so pretentious. Like I love Rushmore is one of my top five favorite movies of all time. Mm-hmm. I love uh, and I think you could probably argue convincingly that Rushmore is in fact his best movie. But yeah. I, I think I that still, Moonrise that's Kingdom still is my right favorite. there. Moonrise Kingdom, like, well, I didn't care much for Fantastic Mr. Fox either. That wasn't terrible, but something about it was still a little bit, like, I could feel, at least from my taste, Wes Anderson getting a little too abstract and distracted, getting a little bit too clever and with himself. Well, you know, one thing that's interesting about but, Anderson is he wrote his first three movies with Owen Wilson. Yeah. And the ones he wrote with Owen Wilson are just a, there's something there's emotionally magic there. there's in an alchemy. Them yeah. that's really special. Yeah. Uh, Wilson was bringing something to those films, and he's worked with different collaborators ever since. But Moonrise Kingdom was the first one I felt he just came roaring back to yeah. full confidence. Which is interesting, because that's not Owen Wilson. That's him working with... Uh, Roman Coppola. Roman Coppola. That's what, yeah, that's what it is. Um, yeah, yeah and I, but I thought that movie... I thought in many ways that movie was kind of a summary. Like, Moonrise Kingdom was a summary of all of the concerns of all of his different movies. It mm-hmm. had the little kid thing of Rushmore, including the fake plays... It and had the, the and the wacky little kid characters and stuff like that and yeah the the theatricality of Rushmore you still had fucked up family stuff disappointment stuff yep. with like it's all about sad adults just like all his movies yeah <laughs> and well I think one of the reasons why like Moonrise Kingdom uh, for me was the fact that like you have these kind of like slightly sad sad kids at least it's not quite as depressing as uh, uh, the Royal Tenenbaums or uh, what's the fish one the water stuff uh, Life Aquatic Life with Aquatic. Steve Zizou. It's at least you can pretend at least there's hope that these characters might grow out of this a little bit and have like slightly more well-adjusted lives. Whereas like the Royal Tannenbaum is all about like characters who are grown up now or old and fucked up and Steve Zizou, the die has already been cast. At least with Moonrise Kingdom, there's a little bit more, it's a little more optimistic. Well, like, like uh, Rushmore, which I think Moonrise Kingdom has a lot in common with, um, they're both about adults transformed by hyper idealistic but possibly deluded children yeah they're both about the same thing and and i really think it's it's right there with rushmore in terms of his masterpiece although i'm a huge bottle rocket fan as well i did i haven't seen bottle rocket since it's on netflix instant now i rented it on video like right after i saw rushmore and i was disappointed that i just didn't like it for some reason like it didn't click with me like rushmore did so it's not like i was like bottle rocket i hate this movie james all rock james o brooks was the big producer on bottle rocket and had a huge input on their script between that and the simpsons james james l brooks knows what he's up to 
Um, uh, but uh, yeah, no, Moonrise Kingdom, and also like it's also the one I like the fact you know this this sounds completely arbitrary, but the fact that it does not end with a slow motion shot, the fact that like <laughs> but there was a slow motion shot in it. After there the was wedding. a slow motion shot, yeah, it's, which that's still great though. Like, yeah. Uh, but I'm glad to see that at least he can break form a little bit, even if it's just I don't I've, know. Never, I've never thought that you know people will accuse Anderson of being in a stylistic rut, and I and I, to which I always reply, mm, yeah. well, what a rut. Yeah, it's a, it's a rut that you can apply to. It a never feels less than fresh to me. It's a kind of a flexible rut, but like I was, yeah, I don't, I don't know. But so the the another movie, it's a Wes Anderson movie with special effects too, which is always amazing to see. I know his little handcrafted special yeah. effects. Oh, Mary Poppins silhouettes did, did like during the whole rainstorm sequence at the end and stuff. Anyway, yeah, but yeah, new moon, also fantastic soundtrack. Yes. Oh yeah, I think and I think it's Anderson's best use of music in a movie ever. Yeah, I think his Alexander Desplat just. Freaking brought and the, the two pain. leads in it were fantastic. Yeah, too. and the, the kids the, are great. The kid and the girl and the yeah. It is the most. I think it was the the. I think in Brooklyn, New York, it was the most used couples costume. <laughs> I, I why am I not surprised? Anyway, you move on your next film. Yeah. Um, the master, uh, the new Paul and Thomas saw this, Anderson. She one. was she, losing her shit over this. I was surprised. Did she love it? Yeah, she really yeah. loved it. It's a great movie. It's uh the the way the thing I was kind of I think I wrote in my thing for the Oregonian. If you thought there will be blood, was just too cuddly. <laughs> Jesus. You'll be pleased to hear that um, Paul Thomas Anderson stares hard into I, the abyss. I think There Will Be Blood may be his only film that I've seen. I've never seen... He did Boogie Nights? Yes. Yeah, I haven't seen that. Oh, that's great. You should yeah, watch it. I've always heard, heard good things, but I mean, they will. There Will Be Blood was fantastic, but... You know. This is definitely a companion piece of There Will Be Blood. And this is the film about... It's, it's a veiled movie um, about Scientology, kind of, sort of. The history kinda, like, of Scientology... At least it takes off on that. The history of Scientology informs... Uh, the master. Yeah. What it's about really is about two guys who are both kind of monstrous in their own ways. Joaquin Phoenix plays an insanely tortured, messed up guy who was in World War II, probably has post-traumatic stress. Oh, I didn't realize is, it was a period thing. Is a brain, it's like 1950s. Yeah. And it, it, he's oh, basically shit. a brain damaged level alcoholic. Yeah. He distills his own liquor out of whatever he finds around like I don't like, know why, but suddenly finding out this appeared piece only makes me even more interested. But anyway, oh, it's, it, but it, it, the thing about this movie is it's even more unrelenting than There Will Be Blood in terms of just not being afraid to be ugly. Yeah. Um, and, and what happens is that Freddie Quell, the character played by Phoenix, who is giving an unbelievable performance, but it's one of those ones that's so thoroughly invested that you kind of walk out of it going, oh my God, what's wrong with Joaquin Phoenix? <laughs> but he, uh, he gets involved with a cult leader Played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, and the his that character is absolutely based to some degree, informed by the history of Scientology. Yeah. There's a lot of story beats that are parallel L. Ron Hubbard's actual life, but it's not L. Ron Hubbard. Um, but what he's done, and just riffing off of that, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's not what like, he's done is he's made a great story about uh, two guys who are basically using their own methods to get out of their societal strictures. Um, there's a great this, the whole movie is summed up by one scene in which. Uh, uh, Freddie Quell and, and or um, Joaquin Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman are both in jail cells next to each other. Yeah. And in one jail cell, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman is just calmly thinking, just looking totally composed. And in the next cell over, uh, Joaquin Phoenix is just destroying the cell, like kicking toilets, so destroying toilets and destroying beds and ripping off his own clothes. Yeah. And what it is is that these are two men who are feel caged by society who have found different ways to break out of it. And what happens is is that Hoffman tries to change Freddie Quell for reasons that, you know, may be vaguely homoerotic. We don't know. Well, but basically he forms this very intense kinship with with Joaquin Phoenix's character and tries to change him. And I think the point of the movie is he does change him, but not in the way he intended. 
It's a really, really... Does he end up dead? Freddy Quell. I'm not going to tell you. No, okay. no. Um, but he ends up... It, it, the transformations that happen are very subtle. Okay. And it's it's a... But it's a really, really... Is in it a super f- long movie? Uh, not too bad, I don't think. Because 2012 seems to be the year where it just became codified that all movies have right. to be three hours long between Prometheus and The Hobbit and all these other goddamn... I, I, I can't really remember. One thing I do remember about The Master is it, it was it was a movie that just decided to stay really close, like, like Les Mis, on people's faces. Okay, for a long which is not of bad. It's it sustained As long as it's not just a stylistic crutch that's used with no reason, yeah. It was used on... Which is kind of what happens in Les Mis, where it's kind of an arbitrary... It draws attention to itself because it's like a, this artificial kind of weird just affectation, yeah. He made a point of shooting it in um, 70 millimeter. Anderson did. Oh, really? And, and he actually hoped people would come see it at like theaters that were showing in in 70 millimeter yeah. apparently when that thing is projected in 70 millimeter with the face is like 20 feet tall or you know it, it just destroys you yeah. um it's great i highly recommend it uh another movie i liked was kill list have you what heard of that? this i've heard of that but what is it oh my god you would no love, one's explained it to me Let's you would way. love kill list bill yeah? kill list is a by a guy named ben wheatley uh he's this uh uk director um, and he made a movie about two contract killers with accents so thick you kind of need to watch the movie twice or with subtitles on <laughs> But they, um, they're two guys who were in the army together, and uh, they now are contract killers. Mm-hmm. And they take on a series of hits. They agree to take a series of hits. They're killing people on a kill list. Yeah. And the further they go, the weirder the things get. To give you an example, the first guy they... they go to hit as a priest and they go to hit the priest and the priest goes it's a pleasure to meet you thank you and then they kill him yeah and they're like what the hell was that and then that's just the beginning of a sort of weird alice in wonderland journey the movie actually starts out one thing i loved about it is it's structured so weird it starts out as seeming like just a domestic drama about these two guys then it becomes a hitman movie and then it just keeps getting stranger and stranger and stranger it, there's no cues at the beginning that it's a horror film yeah it just oh, yeah. becomes one. Is it like a gruesome horror film? Is more like a psychological? There's some of the some of the most violent thing? things I've seen in movies all year in this. Like, yeah. there's one scene where he's just smashing a guy's head against the wall over and over and over. Jesus. And then they any big names in it or directed by anyone we no. know or anything like that? No. Just kind of like out of the blue, just kind of like an indie like fucking crazy movie. Yeah, yeah, you could you could. It was one of those movies you could rent on iTunes before it was in theaters. Yeah, which I love that. That's a nice thing I'm seeing more often now these days. Yeah, like uh, more independent channels. Uh, experimenting with digital releases in anticipation of theatrical releases or right after or oh, yeah. yeah, or even before a movie's come out on DVD and stuff like that, yeah. But what was great about it is it has this dream logic quality. It has this kind of nightmare vibe. Um, is it like a British gangster film? Is it like... It kind of starts out feeling that it, kind it of has tone? a definite... But then it just jumps out from there, yeah. It has a definite um, gangster vibe for a long time and you're thinking that's what it is and then it just keeps getting weirder and weirder. Um, it actually, the way I was describing it is it's like got elements of the shining wicker man but then with shit tons of david lynch mixed Jesus in Christ, yeah. you gotta see it. i think you would love I for some reason this is reminding me of the limey which is another steven so yeah. movie but that's like like a gangster movie starring zod <laughs> but that which that kind of turned into a weird thing too but that was a whole imagine if and the stuff, character yeah. from um the limey wandered onto the set of the wicker man and you're kind I of starting to that. get yeah, there no, that sounds fantastic i have never heard like i've heard people mention make mention this movie but i didn't realize that was a movie that came out in theaters this year it, okay yeah, yeah. barely um but it is the feel bad horror movie of the year i loved it oh that's fantastic um, yeah then we talked about cloud atlas i thought cloud atlas was kind of great you've talked about it on your show oh yeah i was not a fan of cloud atlas I, did you read the book 
No. I read the book and my expectations got really high. Well, also the book, like the whole um, the whole reincarnation thing that Cloud Atlas, the movie hangs itself on, yeah. was only a very tiny part of the book. And it was actually the, the least essential, least interesting part of the book. And the fact that they made that the focus of the movie... I thought was kind of like mid, like it's that has it's just. Well, I didn't think the point was reincarnation. I thought it was just trying to show that everybody's well, interrelated. Yeah, but they already there was already enough interrelated stuff with the plots and the different characters in the book without having the layer on the thing of like, well, the main character from each plot from each story is the same. It's the same soul just reincarnated over and over, yeah. and over again. And, uh, yeah, w- which led to really hammy character performances and, yeah, weird ye- yellow face makeup stuff in the movie where I thought that was, like, really clumsy and it just totally knocked me right out See, of See, I, I think it was clumsy on purpose because I think you were supposed to know that they were the same actors. I, think I know, the whole point but still, wasn't, like... I don't think the point was reincarnation. They don't look like Asians. They look like Romulans from Star Trek The Next Generation where they kind of look like cross-eyed, vaguely kind of like... You know, I, I think if you showed me any individual moment in Cloud Atlas, I would go, what? That's terrible. But I think the way it all hung together, I thought it was brilliantly edited mm. the way it cut between all that stuff and wasn't confusing was that amazing. was interesting because in the book like everyone's story right. is big chunks whereas in the movie it's just a mosaic just leaping from one time period and one character to another just like willy-nilly for for three hours and that was interesting yeah but so i love the editing you know. i love i actually thought that the i thought the point was provocative which is that we're all interrelated i never thought it was about a reincarnation it's about the fact that we're all in this together and he's yelled at me for harping so much on about reincarnation too because so i don't be, think the reincarnation this may is be the more of, of bill mudron or my perception of it is so warped that like yeah maybe your mileage may uh, will vary i just don't think I, I think it's more that we're all in this together maybe we should try getting along i think yeah. that's ultimately the point of cloud atlas i think it's pretty simple really. oh, yeah it's it's, it's 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 not a bad lesson to learn either but mm. yeah i just that the, the execution was just kind of lacking huh. so yeah you're not alone. Yeah. I know. Isn't that, well, didn't that bomb? <laughs> yeah. Because that movie, that's another thing where it costs like $150 million, made like like $50 million back. and They'll probably eventually make their money back. Yeah, I'm sure but... on a home video and HBO and shit like that. But well, I wonder what the Wachowski's brothers are going to do next because, I mean, this and Speed Racer, that's not a good... And also like how much everyone hates the Matrix sequels. Yeah, they're two. They're guys who. Uh, one thing I like about them though is they never don't jump off the cliff. They're like, they're let's, gonna go. Let's try. They're gonna go to John Space and say, John Space, we want to have lunch with you, and they're gonna have two hours. <laughs> and they're like, John Space, we need to make a sequel to Bound. We don't care what it's about. Just just write it for us now. Bound yeah. would be a great movie to. <laughs> I would love. We need to, to get some of that lesbian cash back. Oh my god! Yeah. Every okay. lesbian I've ever known Bound, in my life is, has. Bound is a great movie. No. Movie. I just every lesbian I know in my life is like, Bound, I love Gina Grishan so much. It's just kind of like a, I would just like this. What my point is, I'd like to see them go back to a little noir universe. They yeah, can do it. I would love to see them just make a couple more small indie films again. I don't like they don't always have to make like $200 million big sci fi epics anymore. Did you see um, Cabin in the Woods? You didn't see. I saw it. Did you like it? It was ridiculous. I love sometimes I'll see someone like on Twitter be like, oh, I'm going to see this Cabin in the Woods. I've heard people talk about it. And you'll see them kind of like live-tweeting the experience. They're like like five minutes in. Oh, this WTF. is interesting. Ten minutes in, they're like, what? Fifteen minutes, like, what the <laughs> fuck is going on? Are we going to spoil uh, uh, Cabin in the Woods at all? I, I think all I would say about it is this. I would say it, the thing that's really interesting about it and what makes it work is that it is not just a horror comedy. No. It is a film essay on why horror what horror means and why how it's constructed it's very meta that way yeah but, but it not, works but as it's both. fun though it's really cheeky it's not like this big like stuffy like what is horror and film what does it mean to be scared in right. cinema no especially especially because it's examining the archetypes of 80 slasher films yeah. especially with like yeah oh it's, man 
it's a my, I thought it was mind blowing. It was beautiful feat. I, I I was blown away when I found out that they that Drew Goddard and Whedon basically rented a house and like I guess wrote most of it in a weekend. I can, which it kind of feels like that because it's got this like fever dream quality to yeah. like the, the the plotting and everything. But anything where it's got it's it's a it's a mo- major motion picture with Bradley Whitford in it. It's worth seeing just for that alone. Oh well, the thing, the the key to how to watch the movie, in my opinion, is the fact that when does the title card appear? The cabin in the woods. Yeah. It doesn't appear on the cabin. It doesn't appear in the horror part of the story. It appears when Bradley Whitford and 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 Richard Jenkins are driving in a golf cart. Yeah. The cue is, we're gonna watch these guys. This yeah. is the this is the movie, and what it is is it's about them in the control room, which is a movie screen. It's about an audience. It's, it's about, about an audience. audience. It's yeah. about an audience watching horror and what they're getting from it. Spoilers: There's a uh, Bradley Whitford and Richard Jenkins are watching do people on a TV screen. It's yeah. it's it's that movie. I I well I don't think that's a spoiler. It's the first minute of the movie. Yeah, no, but still that like when you're watching the movie, you're thinking Cabin in the Woods, you're thinking like Evil Dead right. Three or something like that. You're not expecting what even how like I said, when people live tweet the first ten minutes are like, what? Did I rent the wrong movie? Like the what's movie going on is yeah. about audiences. And and it's fascinating for that. I've seen some people get really turned off too because they don't understand like why why I don't know like people it's it's funny to see people just don't understand what's going on in that movie too or just like they like maybe they just wanted a straight like horror movie yeah. and they're like why I don't want they wanted a they wanted a straightforward horror comedy yeah, and they don't get that yeah it's not it's it's yeah it's a, it's a, I've never seen anything quite like it and I and I really enjoyed it I'm kind of bummed I only saw it on home video I didn't see it when it was out in theaters I think it would have been fun to see it in theaters with like another audience. Because that seems like the social, the social, the social experience of seeing that with uh, other people on first blush would have been really fun. Oh yeah, kind of like seeing Avengers for the first time. I'm glad to see I got to see. I'm glad I got to see Avengers for the first time with you in an audience. Because like the audience reaction to that movie, that was half the movie was like people rooting and cheering. For Whedon that had a too. great year. Yeah, can't wait for um his much ado about nothing. Can't wait. That's coming out what like next spring? Next June. Next yeah. June. Yeah. Um, I hope it doesn't like. I I hope this doesn't take some of the bloom off the uh, Joss Whedon rose. Where I hope they don't like pimp it up too much from like from the guy who brought you right. the Avengers. I hope it's like a very like small indie release. I hope they don't like that thing yeah. was designed to be like something that you discover. It was a therapy for him while he was yeah. He just shit it out while he was recuperating from taking filming a break. the Avengers. Yeah, yeah. did it, it what it, like in a week with a bunch of his friends and that's it's it. almost yeah. granola filmmaking and he should keep it that way. Yeah, and in an ideal world, world they would just really release it like straight to iTunes, like like rather than even worry about too much of like a huge theatrical. Well, I think he was originally going to do it as a web thing or something like that. Well, yeah. it's like yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll see. Yeah, we'll I'll see. Be we'll find out later on the summer. Yeah. Um. I thought that Looper was good. I think you probably talked about Looper already on this yeah, show. Yeah, Looper comes out. Yeah, I, when we were taking a break, I just got an uh, email from Amazon just saying my Blu-ray of Looper had just shipped. Great. It will be here on Monday. Uh, yeah, Ryan Johnson's good times. I'm trying to think of anything to... Like, it's hard to talk about Looper without spoiling it. Well, he, he did the same thing that he does with Brick and the Brothers Bloom, where he takes as many ideas as possible, and, yeah. and like things that often don't seem like they go together, and just stuffs them into a, a single film. He's one of the most... I don't know if you want to say he's one of those creative filmmakers, but he's... He's great at taking things that it should not work together and making them work together. He's probably the one filmmaker where if I see his name on the poster, I'll just go see the movie blindly from now on. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, he... I mean, he... Like, in Brick, he mashed up film noir and, like, high school. Yeah. And in, in Which, Brothers Bloom... that should have worked. Brothers Bloom, he did quirky heist comedy with big costumes and then, like, kind of sad, emotional. Yeah. <laughs> like, it was like a screwball comedy with lots of dark emotion. Yeah. And then, and then I think... In the new one, he mashes up the Terminator 
and then like telekinetic horror. That's the one thing in that movie I think that still doesn't. It's make the any one sense. thing too many. The telekinetic because there's no reason for it to be there other than some plot stuff with like the antagonist in the movie. But but, it's, the, it's, but it's, it also it's... is like this generational conflict about a, a self-centered guy at two different ages. That's kind of because cool, the thing yeah. is interesting. Bruce Willis is also self-centered. Mm-hmm. He's killing people just to keep his own personal life. Spoilers: Bruce Willis kills a. Does he kill multiple kids in that movie? He kills. I don't know. I don't. He know. fucks up a lot of shit in that movie. He, though, yeah. He's. Um, I think that that you know, and also the thing I loved about that movie is Joseph Gordon-Levitt just embodies Bruce Willis without ever doing an impression of him. Which is, little, there's a couple things where he's like kind of doing the whole like it almost feels like he's on a Saturday Night Live. So he, he just skirts that edge just a little bit, <laughs> but not enough where it takes you out of the movie. But a little bit, you can tell where he's like, nah. He kind of just makes the Bruce Willis face and he kind of shrugs his full shoulders. So it's not bad. Uh, when he does when he does the Seagram's wine cooler commercial, that is a little yeah, yeah he's pushing the limit. <laughs> but well, uh, Looper, uh, one of the best scenes again I, uh, I saw this year, where it's just pure movie magic. Where this is something that wouldn't work in any other medium. Like I was flipping out about Anne Hathaway's big number in Les Mis was the missing fingers. Yeah, that Paul Dano kind of gets jacked up in in Looper in a way that like is one of the fucked up. It's, that it's, that it's, is a distressing It is scene. bad times, yeah. And in fact, it you know if you tried to analyze that movie, uh, yeah. technically, it falls apart. Eh, kind of. If you try, if you try any, to do that internet guy, but the thing is... Any time travel movie falls right. apart, if you think about it, for but that hard is a, enough for long enough. But that is a great example of a movie that is so engrossing in terms of its characters and its ideas that you're carried along through that, and you yeah. don't sit around with your arms crossed going, well, that shouldn't work. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. Um... I, I think uh, I love your voice of the internet. That's what you mean. She mean me. Do you like uh, Do you like Whit Stillman at all? Which one's Whit Stillman? Uh, have you ever seen uh, Metropolitan or Barcelona or Metropolitan? The old nineteen twenties. No, no, the nineteen nineties indie about sort of. Um, oh, Metropolitan, not Metropolis. Privileged no. dead kids. No. Well, he's this, oh, he was this great director. I've was, heard the name, but he know. did these great three great movies, The Last Days of Disco, Barcelona, and Metropolitan, that were sort of studies of privileged kids in you know, sort of having their little comedies of manners. Yeah. They're beautifully written. They're very dialogue-driven. He just finally came back from his first movie in 13 years, and he made this fucking crazy movie called Damsels in Distress. I never heard of this. Um, it's about uh, the sort of mid-list college in which, um, oh, God, uh, Greta Gerwig plays this sort of crazy girl who's at this college who tries to save everybody on this campus with dance lessons and, uh, and all, I can't, it, it's, it's a very strange movie. It, it mixes all the sort of deadpan comedy of manner stuff you'd expect from Metropolitan's director. What's this called again? Uh, Damsels in Distress. Huh, never but it heard mixes about that this. deadpan comedy manners, manners with dance numbers and like cartoony slapstick. It's kind of like, it was, is it a comedy? Yeah. Okay. It, it, or could, I could see it being like maybe a comedic drama. It's just a got, dramedy. It's got its horror. own tone completely. Okay. If you if you know Whit Stillman, any listeners who like Whit Stillman should check out Damsels in Distress because it, it's completely sloppy and indie film weird and just We're feels like right now. I'll Google it because that sounds like a weird. Yeah. Yeah. Watch the Damsels in Distress trailer. Um, Nothing to do with Dams- Dancer in the Dark. Right. Which it's not a sequel. It's not a prequel. Um. Yeah. So I, I recommend that. Wait, who's the filmmaker? His name Whit is Stillman. Whit Stillman. That sounds like he should be playing a banjo. It should be like a southern blues guy or something. I'll show yeah. you. I'll show you the trailer when we're done. Yeah, and, and we'll have to we, check that out. It's a very. It's it, what I liked about it is it has that '90s indie film sloppiness. Yeah. It's like he went 
I, the vibe is he went completely insane. But the this 13 is an older years he wasn't guy, making like movies. He, I mean, if he was making movies like yeah. 15 years ago, he's probably yeah. in his 50s. He just took a long break and. Oh God, that just reminds me. The worst part of Django Unchained is Tarantino actually shows up in it again. Oh no! And now he's kind of older and fatter. Now he's even more like ah, I'm Quentin Tarantino. I don't belong in this movie, but I'm here for 10 seconds just to kind of throw you for a loop. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> Thinking about directors getting older and fatter, you know. Uh, um, but, um, I think my last couple that I would recommend in my list, anyway, were um, yes. Skyfall, obviously. Yeah, I th- I would have said imagine if you care about Skyfall, you've probably already seen Skyfall, yeah. unless you live like in India, like we're not Indianapolis. That's not a foreign country. Indonesia, <laughs> and it just hasn't come out yet. Skyfall, I'm still kind of blown away by how yeah. how much of a great rebound from um, Quantum of Solace that was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, my last one that I would recommend, uh, well, a couple more. There's a great documentary that just t- turned up on Netflix called The Queen of Versailles. I saw that. It's on my queue. You're, again, watching people tweet about watching that movie is... It wrecks you're, you're, you. You're tweeting about that, like, last night or this morning when you were watching it, saying, I will never spend frivolously again. That movie wrecks you. It's a documentary yeah. about this guy who, and his wife, who, this guy is a, was loaded. He, yeah. He's the king of the timeshare condos or whatever. Um, and he had built this huge empire, but he sort of built it in the same way that, like, uh, like uh, this already sounds like bad juju to begin with. Well, he yeah. built it in much the same way that um, subprime mortgages work. Yeah. So he his business is a beautiful metaphor for what just happened in the American economy. Mm-hmm. Two thousand eight comes, it all collapses, and he is so he was building the world's largest mansion. Like a hundred million dollar mansion. Yeah, so like the world's largest single structure domestic yeah. home in America. And yeah. and when the economy collapses and he can no longer get people to buy his timeshares in that same sort of subprime mortgage yeah. style, um, all of a sudden his he faces a lot of financial hardship and they have to cut back, lay off employees. And it's all about. Are they still in the middle of building the home when, when they're this in happens? the middle of building the home. Work I just imagine the home just being half finished, and they just end up having to hang plastic drapes over the unfinished part. Well, as you can imagine, yeah. a half finished house becomes a beautiful visual metaphor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And oh. and what happens is you think the movie when you're going into it is going to be, hey, let's point at the rich, deluded people who live in a bubble and laugh at them. Mm-hmm. But in fact, the movie finds colossal humanity in these people, and you start realizing that okay, while that's they are cool. so completely it's not extreme just... human beings, they're also suffering. Okay, so it's not just like a Morgan Spurlock, like, no. yeah. They're, they're suffering just like anybody would. And okay. so what happens is you just sort of see this very exaggerated caricature. And also there's heartbreaking side stories like their domestic help. Like there's the woman who's from, I think, the Philippines who's basically what been raising this woman's kids instead of her own. She's been sending money back to the Philippines for yeah. 20 years, and she hasn't seen her kid in 20 years. Jesus. And she's just full of regret. This sounds hilarious. Well, the thing is, is you think at first it's going to be like, ha-ha, yeah, like let's laugh. Exactly, like, and yeah. then the movie just emotionally destroys you. It's awesome. I highly recommend it. Um, and the last thing I would recommend is The Perks of Being a Wallflower. I keep hearing about that. I, all I know is that's the uh, Hermione Granger movie. Right, and she's great in it. It's an adaptation of this guy, director Stephen Chopsky, who... Adapts his own novel, young adult novel he wrote in 1999. Oh, it, okay. So this, oh, so it's actually rel- rel- relatively recent pedigree. It's then. a period. Yeah, because I heard that the, the the author adapted his own screenplay, which yeah. is often doesn't work. Well, what's so good about this movie then? Like, what's um, what's the? It's set in the early 90s, and it's basically. Are you serious? About yeah. So this character is essentially as old as like you, you and I would have. Yeah. yeah, yeah, me specifically. He's basically you in high school. It pushes all the buttons, oh, and Jesus. it's about this kid who's had some trauma. Is kind of a messed up kid. And he goes into high school and he makes friends with this brother-sister who are played by the 
the brother is played by the kid from There's Something About Kevin. Yeah. Or we need to talk about Kevin. Yeah. He played a great psychopath in that, and he's hilarious in this. And then he, and then his sister is played by uh, Emma Watson, uh, Hermione Granger. She's actually pretty good. And she's terrific. And she has a great American accent, which is... I'm really surprised. Always yeah. amazing. Well, I never pictured her. She, just, she was really, really cute in the Harry Potter movies, but she never struck me as being an actor or an actress. Yeah. Like, but, like, I'm glad to see she had... It, her first big non-Harry Potter movie, I'm glad to see she was good in, and it sounds like everyone's been raving about how great the movie is. Well, the movie is just this great, gentle ode to how good friends can get you through tough times. See, that's, okay, that's good. It's I'm just, glad to see it's, it's really not like a big sweet. arch drama. Or... It's not huge, it's not particularly laugh-out-loud hilarious, it's just this very huh. sweet little comedy about these great friendships. And uh, I don't even know if I would say the movie has a villain, per se. It's just kind well, it's of... Well, it's where it's just a story, but it's not like a big... Yeah. It's also got just a great soundtrack. That just uh, kind of yeah. Well, if it was from like twenty years right ago, back. I'm sure it's like yeah. Anybody who oh, man. had a college dorm, uh, was in a college dorm or high school around that time, will be completely flashed back. Um, yeah, and those are the movies I really loved. I would I would recommend any moments of other films. Any movies you specifically hated this year? Oh gosh, that, 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 that's probably such an open ended question. Yeah, I well, hated Prometheus. <laughs> yeah, I felt because Annie loves Prometheus, and like that's that's been a. Uh, uh, that's been uh, some serious tension between us for most of the year, because I'll be like, I fuck Prometheus, and Annie has to put up with it, and she's like, I like Prometheus so much, and I'm like, Bruh. Um What about you? Uh, my favorite movies, yeah, Looper, uh, Moon... I actually had to write down a list of all the movies I saw, and then I starred the ones that I thought were my favorites this year, and I, I don't think I even came up with ten movies that I thought were my favorite. Uh, Looper, Moonrise Kingdom, Avengers... Yeah. Probably, yeah. Like, Avengers is still not necessarily a great movie, but it's 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 still better than it should have been. What it pulls off is amazing. Yeah, and it's still it's it's filled with a lot, a lot of great character moments. I mean, hell, it's w- worth seeing just to see uh, computer generated Hulk beat the shit out of computer generated <laughs> uh, Loki for that just that one shot where oh god, well, probably the that most... was one of the best moments to see. Again, that's pure movie magic. That was one of the best moments to see in a movie theater this year with an audience for the first time. Was when. The Hulk grabs Loki by the legs and smashes him like he's on a fucking <laughs> Warner Brothers cartoon. I think that probably is the movie's biggest achievement, is just that it, it finally gets the Hulk right. Yeah. Only took like 50 years of Hollywood trying to get the, Hollywood, the Hulk well, right one I way or the other. Bill Bixby gets it right, but too. Yeah, but yeah, uh, that, was, was, that was more getting Bruce Banner right rather than the Hulk, because the Hulk was still just a big green guy goes, right. throws, the, throws the bear over the mountain. But like, yeah, no, like, he, like yeah, they got both the... Um, um, I just said his name. Who's the guy who's not the Hulk? The human guy. Mark Ruffalo? Mark Ruffalo. No, getting... Uh, no, wait, he's the scientist. Bruce Banner. Getting Bruce Banner and the Hulk, right? Yeah. Well, it doesn't hurt that the Hulk's only in the movie for maybe collectively like 10 minutes. So they could kind of like... Whenever he does show up on screen, they kind of could raise their focus on making him entertaining. I still... I, I don't know how, like how you'd still pull off making a Hulk movie still be interesting. You could do it. It's It can be done. If you I would make... go see a Mark Ruffalo Hulk movie in a heartbeat. Yeah. I my 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 big thing when I talk about movies like if you could make Glengarry Glen Ross, which is a movie about selling real a bunch of old white guys in <laughs> office selling real estate, make that if you can make that into one like an awesome movie, you can make anything into an awesome movie. Why so, hasn't anybody done? You know how we live in remix culture now, and everybody mashes everything else up. Yeah. Why hasn't anybody done a Glengarry Glen Ross with the Avengers? I'm sure it's out. I'm, I'm sure on Somebody YouTube someone's done, done it with like sock puppets or something. Who would be? Well, I guess Tony Stark would be, uh, um... He would be... Tony, uh, Tony Roma or whatever. He would be, um, Mr. Godfather. Nick Fury would be Alec Baldwin's character. Oh, yeah, in. exactly. I mean, that's kind of what his character is to be. What's your with. name? Fuck you is my name. Who's, a jo- who's Jack Lemmon, then? Would Jack- that be Captain America? Kind of like, hey. <laughs> yeah, the old guy, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That guy 
Yeah, exactly. They hey, Steve guys. Rogers, coffee is for closers. Yeah. Who's, uh... Oh, God, I mean... <laughs> That'd be great. Well, we'd have we'd have um we'd have Tony Stark sitting there with a with a guy buying real estate going, you ever uh, you ever take a shit that makes you feel like you slept for twelve hours? Yeah, that'd be so great. I'd love to see Downey deliver that dialogue. Oh my god, I'm sure it's on YouTube. I'm sure like thirteen different people have done it. But uh, yeah, um, Cabin in the Woods. I saw that, but not. I'm trying to think. Like, um, like Skyfall is still one of my favorites. Like again, Skyfall maybe not the best movie ever, but it's one of the best James Bond movies. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um. Jiro Dreams of Sushi. I've heard that's great. I haven't seen it. Oh, that's on Netflix. I mean, that's been on Netflix ever since almost like right after it came out in theaters. It's a documentary about a guy who has made perfect sushi. Uh, Yeah, I don't want to talk it up too much because it's like, again, like it seems like this crappy movies this year were kind of like, at least with the movies I've seen, it wouldn't take that much. Just, it didn't have to take that much for the movie to really rise above the others because there were so many kind of like man big budget movies and that's most of the kind of movies i saw this year but yeah jiro dreams of sushi yeah a very quiet little 90 minute documentary about this guy who makes like uh supposedly one of the best uh sushi chefs in uh tokyo and he just works in the subway yeah and works in the he subway works in a little kiosk and... in the subway well the funny thing is the character you think he's going to be like this crazy old japanese guy who's he's he's old and bitter and cranky but like the way they portray him in the documentary it's not so arch where it's he becomes a cartoon character like he has his sons are kind of working with him, and his his sons are kind of kowtowed to his dream, and they're kind of, they're trying to work hard enough so they can get their own restaurants and kind of like try to, like try to look work with his within his shadow without like being completely stuck within his shadow. But it's just I don't know. It's 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 very nice. Also brilliant brilliant, uh, brilliant cinematography. It'll make you hungry. I hate sushi. Even then, I'm like watching, <laughs> going, damn, that shit looks good. Um, Great, I'll check it out. Yeah, yeah. Again, that's on 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 Netflix Instant. Uh, two other documentaries, uh, Indie Game, the movie. I've heard that's good too. Which is, uh, yeah, just, uh, it's the guys who made Fez, the story of Isaac, and a couple other, uh, just indie games, just talking about how their games got developed, where these guys came from, about where they grew up from, and how they made these games, and how they're distributed. Uh, that's very good. And Minecraft, the story of Mojang, which just came out last week. Uh, it's a documentary by local film crew, two-player productions about the creation of Minecraft, the video game Minecraft. Really? Yeah, this just came out. Again, it's... The the documentary is not so much about how Minecraft was made. Maybe the first 20 minutes is about a Marcus uh, person who is the guy who invented Minecraft and how he wound up making Minecraft. The rest of the movie is just about how this game... how this game has impacted the gaming community and also uh, impacted people who aren't gamers who have falling into games as a result of Minecraft. And so it's an, it's it's more about the social ramifications of the super popular online game where you can build anything you want. And so yeah, it's interesting where it's not just like it's not just like oh, it's Super Mario Brothers kind of video gamey. It's not like pandering to gamers, but it's more just about how games can kind of do social things. That's just interesting. And uh, yeah, my other uh, favorite starred movie is Django Unchained, and I just saw that like two days ago. So well, yeah, that's a pretty good meaty list for people. Yeah, I'm trying to think of anything else. Yeah, Dark Knight Rises, The Raid Redemption. I saw. I thought that was pretty good, but I've heard, I have not. Now this is one of the ones That's... I'm embarrassed I haven't seen because I'm a genre guy. I have yeah. not yet seen The Raid Redemption. It's good though. Which is like I guess some of the craziest violent action. It's super violent. I this this is me being uh, being crazy. Where I'm upset. Where it's a movie about a bunch of cops shooting a bunch of gangsters. That's still. The, the 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 lengths they go to to have to still turn every fight into a kung fu fight, despite the fact that this is taking a taking place in an, an apartment complex that's <laughs> filled with guns. You think there wouldn't be that much room for kung fu fighting? I mean, the choreography and the fighting is fantastic. It's just a little bit. Sometimes I'm like, 
lot of lot of um, like it just kind of stretches. Uh, it stretches credibility. Well, a lot of machete fighting bit. in that. Yeah, a lot of machete yeah, fighting and yeah. stuff like I'm that. I'm really looking forward. And to And no, seeing I mean it. it's a good movie. I shouldn't talk. Our, talk a friend about of it the show much. and uh, and and very good film writer friend of mine, Becky Olson, yeah. saw it. And Becky loves movies where people punch each other in the face. Oh, she would. Yeah. And she was like, she saw it and she told me. This was a little extreme, even for me. I was like, <laughs> people get fucking wrecked in this movie. <laughs> so I was like, well, and it's really direct too, because really the plot is about a uh, a bunch of police officers just trying to take down this bad guy who lives in an apartment built, built, uh, complex, which I guess is also the same plot for Judge Dredd that came out this year too. Which, which I still I, didn't see. I, I actually heard that. the Judge Dredd three D was not bad. I keep on hearing that's actually a great fucking genre. This is again the big budget movies this year didn't do that great, but like indie movies and like little smaller budget genre flicks were really yep. great this year. The twelve. No, it's wait. a great. It's, it was a great year for movies. What's oh, Thirteen Assassins? That did not come Thirteen out this Assassins. Year. I saw was that this year. Two thousand eleven movie. Okay, that's what it is. Okay, how great was that though? That was fantastic. Holy Again, God. that's on Netflix. Since and that was awesome. It's the seventh. I. We should recommend Thirteen Assassins every year. Yeah, people. That's where most people probably saw that for the first time this year. Well, that'll be our inaugural. That's our best uh, twenty twelve movie of twenty. Uh, of no, wait, be, that, Thirteen Assassins is our best two thousand eleven movie of twenty twelve. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Or a little award. Um, yeah, Cabin in the Woods, Haywire, eh, Brave, not that interesting. John Brave Curtis was Morris. one of those ones that was like runner up. It was like it wasn't I like Brave, but it felt too much like a like a stereotypical Disney movie rather than like a groundbreaking Pixar flick. It's funny because Pixar again is suffering from that thing where you know they've set this bar so high for themselves that a good movie came out. And you're like, eh. yeah, I know exactly because it's not. You What's wrong with Brave? Brave is yeah. good. Uh, Wreck-It Ralph. Did you see that? I did not see Wreck-It. Again, Ralph. about video games, but that was that. That was better than it. Uh, it had any right to be. Uh, probably largely because it was uh, written and directed by uh, uh, Simpsons guys. Uh, yeah, that's that's. You know what? Like, I'm just. I, I forgot that also Red Tails came out this year. <laughs> Which was George Lucas's? I guess we'll close out on this one. Was which was George Lucas's long, uh, gestating project about uh, black pilots during World War II, right. which finally came out this year and bombed horribly. Did, what did, did it you bomb? Th- I don't think it did. Oh, really? I kept on hearing it like it, it cratered. Did okay. Yeah. It did okay. A lot it, of people said it was a bad movie too. On top of that, it, you know the thing that was. It, I guess it kind of was a bad movie. Yeah. I I, en- I had I admired what it tried to do, which was. And again, it, it Luke actually in a weird way, Lucas sort of did the same thing that Django and Chain did in a way, where except his Lucas's story was based much more on historical fact. Yeah. But he decided to make a film in which uh Is this actually based the, off the It's the Tuskegee, Tuskegee Airman yeah. story. But what he did is rather than making just a sort of important film, quote unquote, about the Tuskegee Airmen, he made a straight up World War Two action propaganda. That's not film. a bad idea. That's, that's kind of a great kooky idea. What I like about it is it isn't. It, it basically is like let's do a straight up Star Wars with airplanes and the Tuskegee Airmen flying the X wings, and 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 I what I I, I it's, so it's weird. I kind of like like what it was trying to do so much. I forgave the fact that it was about as cliched and wooden as Oh, so it he didn't even try to like be. put a twist on it. Because uh, that's a great idea, but you still have to put enough twist so it's still it, entertaining. You yeah. can't just be like... It doesn't have any twist. It is just oh, like... So yeah. it is painfully earnest and straightforward and on the nose. The thing that was cool about it, though, is the... Um, I would imagine if you were an aviation nerd, the air combat stuff, while all CGI is really, really... The stuff really you see in the trailer That looks fantastic. It has yeah. the one thing that I would... It, I can't just write it off, because it has the one thing I think a lot of aviation nerds have always wanted to see in a movie, which is 
guys in P-51 Mustangs taking on the first Nazi jets that oh, came really? on at the end of the war. I had no idea. Oh, that's fantastic. Which, Which is Nazi jets sweet. were supposed to show up in Raiders of the Lost Ark. I wonder if that's part of, like... It's just like it's George just like there's these great scenes where these where the Tuscan uh, Airmen figure out how to take out those Nazi well, jets that came out in the see, very I'll end of the see, war. Yeah, I'll have to see that. Yeah, I mean I'm all gay to see it because it's George Lucas produced it's, movie. But... It's painful when yeah, it's on the ground. That's what I keep on hearing. When in the yeah. air, it's really cool. <laughs> You'll see. Which is weird because HBO I mean. did like a Tuskegee Airmen like made for TV movie twenty years ago, and that was actually pretty cool. Yeah, they but, uh, they they absolutely fail to nail. The... How much? I mean, I, I keep on hearing that supposedly that movie is a failure. A lot of people have actually blamed this uh, the failure of Red Tails on George. Between that and the the 3D re-release of the Phantom Menace this year, that also came out this year. That also didn't make. It I've seen people blame both of those uh, for as being uh, reasons as to why uh, George Lucas was in such a rush to suddenly. Uh, no, he planned sell to the quit company. All along. I mean, no, they've, they've been saying that like his decision to sell Lucasfilm that's been gestating for a while now. It's not like suddenly Red Tails and Phantom Menace re-release bombed. That he was like, "Oh, I'm fucking, I'm selling the company." But I'm wondering if that didn't help kind of show him like, "Okay, well, maybe, maybe I'm not best in charge of this stuff anymore." <sighs> well, you like, know, if that wasn't really kind of because I mean ca- that capped his Lucasfilm career with those those were his two last projects. I, I think you know with Lucas it's always weird because I think Lucas always makes the movie Lucas wants to make, which yeah. I admire. I just don't always like that movie. <laughs> um, you know, it, according to Box Office Mojo, um, Red Tails made forty nine million bucks at the box office, which actually is not bad. Um, but it cost it's about as much as Serenity. It made. cost fifty eight million. Oh, there you go. So it didn't make money. Yeah, it broke even. Yeah. It, after you after you get home video, um, it probably did just fine. <laughs> Are we supposed to? I wonder if we're still getting those other Star Wars re-releases, the three D ones. Yeah, they're gonna they're gonna knock out the other two sequels back like to back fall. really quick. Yeah, now well, now with Disney in, in twenty thirteen, they're just gonna dump them out. Um, but the yeah, plan. I mean, if we're gonna talk about movie news, I mean, this is the that, that's the big thing to talk to if we're gonna wrap this up soon. Is yeah, George Lucas selling Star Wars off to Jesus Christ. Yeah, haven't you talked about this on the show? A little bit, but Danny doesn't care. Oh right. So I mean, there's no, not much to say other than, oh my God, Star Wars. Well, did you see Kathleen Kennedy, uh, who's producer of the new trilogy? She, it sounds like she might be announcing a director sometime next month. Yeah, uh, I think I I'm not. I mean, I, I funny. What's weird is that you know, Star Wars. Like I think with you and me, Star Wars was huge in our lives when we were kids on on up. Yeah. And I have to say, my reaction to the news was like, yeah, that's great. I hope they're good. You know, yeah. I, I what what was weird to me is that. It, they're no longer going to have that crazy sense of authorship that they used to have. Uh, it's going to be Star Wars movies without George Lucas, they're which like, means they're not going to be real. You know what? It's going to be Star Wars movies without the 20th Century Fox fanfare and without John Williams' original music behind it, which already right there, they're already counterfeit Star Wars movies. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure they'll be very entertaining and kids yeah. will love them. I, I think that they're... I see it now as a franchise, yeah. which automatically makes me kind of put it in the same place as like James Bond movies and, you know... It's a series now. See, I, I love because like I, I mean, it'll, I'm sure it'll be I'll, I'll be right there watching it, but I'm not invested emotionally. I I mean I I was excited for the prequels for them to come out. I was disappointed like everyone else, but like I don't know, but like this the the, the, the prequels were so bad that I had not a hard time. I, I had a pretty easy time divorcing myself emotionally from them. But now that I see it, like this is the perfect storm of you could actually get good Star Wars movies where it's. It's it's Star Wars where George Lucas is kind of signing off on things creatively, but isn't really hands on. You've got brand new fr- uh, flesh and blood being brought in from the creative front, while still like retaining guys like. Uh, um, yeah, they're getting old school talent. They're Kasdan's back. Uh, yeah, well, that's what yeah that that's the name I, I was blanking on from it. But Lawrence Kasdan, where he's still going to be around, like 
the, the potential for these to actually be good Star Wars movies is huge. They could still just be terrible movies again anyway, but they can't be any worse than the prequels. I don't know. I'm excited. I'm legitimately excited. Yeah, no, I'm, yeah. I'm definitely curious. I kind of have to say the my emotional hope for director is not who I think it's going to be, which is John Favreau. Yeah. Um, I think it's going to be Favreau. But I, I the the person I hope they get is Joe Johnston. Because no, th- automatically that'd be the perfect fit. Well, yeah. it also would put continuity there because, of course, as I'm sure your listeners know, Joe Johnson worked on the storyboards and production design. He's and, the guy who designed the Millennium Falcon and Boba Fett and Boba Fett. Yeah, uh, he is the he's been there from the beginning. He's a I think Captain America proved he's a sharp director with a good eye. He learned filmmaking because he took a break for while they were working on Return of the Jedi. He went to George Lucas and said, "Hey, you know what can." Like I'd like a little bit, bit of a bump in a race, so I could start taking filmmaking classes at USCLA, and that's that's how we started doing yeah. filmmaking stuff. Yeah, I think he's the logical choice, and mm-hmm. I, I hope they do choose him. But they probably if won't. if it's not somebody It'll like that, I hope row. I hope it's someone even younger. And I I ideally, like, if it's not going to be Steven Spielberg, which would be my pick, it's never going to happen. Spielberg himself, even when they were making the original Star Wars movie, said he would never direct a Star Wars movie because yeah. that's George Lucas's thing. He doesn't want to step on George Lucas's toes. But if it's not going to be Steven Spielberg, uh, I would hope it would be a someone young that we've almost barely even heard about who uses this as a stepping stone to even bigger and, if not, if not better... An Irvin Kirshner type? Yeah, exactly. So someone who, like, if, if, if he doesn't necessarily make bigger things, but better things... Because, like, Star Wars is great, but, like, imagine if, you, if you're out of the starting gate, you make a couple awesome Star Wars movies, what you could do. Like, I hope this would help... Whoever would direct this would be, like, the next George Lucas or the next right. Steven Spielberg. I mean, John Favreau is nice. He's good, but I don't necessarily see him having as as much of an as an interesting career as either of those guys. I would, I, I would, I don't know. Uh, yeah. So I, an unknown but, but, but dazzles you, everyone. That that's that's a fairy tale story that's never going to happen. But they'll stack but, the bench, in my opinion, with safe corporate guys who they know will deliver some good popcorn. Which means because again, we're talking about Disney, they're, they're not going to take huge risks. Because but, the thing that we unless love, unless unless Lucas has has seen somebody out there where he's like, oh, that guy, like this guy, like working in the indie film circuit like we should bring him in unless there's somebody like who uh, lucas has a specific boner for yeah it's going to be like somebody like john Favreau. see my reaction and i'm a little older than you is that we're just sort of i feel sort of left behind by the whole thing because and i don't not in a bad way i just feel like it's not oh, yeah. for me because you and i were alive when these first films came out yeah and and the thing that i think we both remember about the first Star Wars and especially the Empire Strikes Back is they were actually very risky movies. Yeah. Uh, Empire Strikes oh, yeah. Empire Back Empire Strikes and, Back got like kind of mixed reviews. They were when first breaking came out. molds, yeah. and, and, and they were people don't know, because they Star Wars is such a part of the culture now. People forget how mold breaking those movies were. Yeah. And and I and Empire Strikes Back in particular, I've told this story on Court and Fatboy before, um, but you know I, there's a great interview that Mr. Beeks did recently on In Cool News with um, uh, David Fincher. Mm-hmm. And David Fincher says the best thing I've ever heard about The Empire Strikes Back. He goes... Was he working at ILM during The Empire Strikes Back? Yeah. He goes... He says something, and I'm paraphrasing, but he goes, I want you to imagine... This is Fincher. He goes, I want you to imagine the sheer set that George Lucas had on him when he made The Empire Strikes Back. He takes all his money, all his money, shoves it across the table and says, we are going to bet everything on a Muppet and a big pile of powdered uh, of uh, baking soda that's snow. Yeah, <laughs> that's like and it paid off dividends. For and him, we're yeah. not and we're not gonna have a happy ending. 
Well, that's it's funny because I mean that that was a serious dice roll. Well, he almost lost his fucking mind towards the end of that because because they ran out of money before they could finish the Empire Strikes Back because he did take all he was mm -hmm. dividing all of his money between uh, and the Empire Strikes Back and starting work on the Skywalker Ranch and all of his money that he had made from mm -hmm. Star Wars. This the guy had just come up just made the most popular movie of all time and he went from being the world's fastest biggest millionaire in hollywood to just a year and a half later while in the middle of production of uh, empire strikes back being almost stone broke uh -huh. with this movie where he, he like where they main yeah when the big new main character was going to be a muppet the main hero's hand gets cut out and you find out his dad is actually the bad guy where the movie doesn't... And then the movie ends. Yeah, and, like, the movie, there's no big action scene that ends it. Like, the hero gets kicked in the nuts, and then the movie just ends. And, like, everyone's favorite character gets frozen to a block of ice halfway through the movie and just gets sent off to Jabba the Hutt. That's right. And, yeah, like, that... No, those movies are... That's what I'm saying. So, like, it's within George Lucas, I could see him just finding, like, I would love to see him take, uh, like, that quality gamble on someone we haven't heard about yet to do. I mean, probably won't happen because you've got Disney actually bankrolling this. Lucas is only advising... But I would love to see him kind of throw his weight around a little bit. Well, speaking like you that. know more about this than I do. I mean, the thing is, is that I think from what I've gathered that Lucas has had seven, eight, and nine in his pocket for a long time. It says basically, I think it's there as Barely. his retirement strategy. Yeah. Didn't, oh, exactly. Yeah. Didn't Skywalking say this? Didn't Skywalking say he's had this idea the for guy, years? Uh, although uh, the guy it's who a card wrote he's Skywalking, been waiting to play. This guy, although uh, the, the guy who wrote Skywalking said a whole kinds of things. Like, yeah. Oh, really? L Lucas himself has come out and said within the last like decade, it said that like seven, eight, and nine has never existed more than just a couple notes on the on the scrap of a piece of paper, but nothing that was concrete. Yeah. Yeah. So. I mean, they are working for the sequels. They are working on George Lucas. He did say, like, part of his sale of the Star Wars franchise was, okay, here's my ideas for the next. Uh, it, you know, it, it'll it'll be a new generation of kids, blah, 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 yeah. But did it, wait, have Hamill I... and all those guys are in it, right? Isn't that the plan? Uh, well, yeah. Supposedly, Mark Hamill, it sounds like he's going to show up, which I don't know how you put the other characters in there. Did I tell you about my idea for what these movies should be? No. The idea that it should be, because, you know, you got Han, you got uh, Luke Skywalker, he's trying to, like, restart the Jedi bullshit, right? Except, like, he's too busy trying to restart the Jedi bullshit, so he doesn't have any kids of his own that he can pass, you know, he needs someone to, who's going to take the mantle of Jedi Master from him, but the only, uh, the, the only viable Jedi, uh, bloodline in the galaxy is fucking his sisters with Han Solo, so he, like, the only viable person he can get to train to be his replacement would be one of their kids, and so, and so he, maybe the, their oldest, like Leia and Han Solo's oldest daughter, he's like, Hey, you want to become a Jedi? And so essentially it's Lady Han Solo. <laughs> She's inherited an even more fucked up beat up Millennium Falcon training to be a Jedi Knight. She's got to use her contacts that she inherited from uh, Han Solo with like the, the Star Wars pirate underground to help like still rebuild the brand new Republic. And so it's still kind of like, you know, you got like Jedi shit, but then you also got like underworld crazy pirate shit. And... That's my idea. Wasn't there a, uh, I'm trying to remember this, but what didn't Annie and Foley start a Tumblr called Ladies Dressed as Han Solo? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying Lady Han Solo with the Millennium Falcon and a lightsaber. Come oh, yeah. on, make it, make, make it happen. Yeah. So. There's a, there is a, there is a Tumblr and I believe. Oh, there's an Asian lady who she's gotten real famous online because she does, she has a fantastic Han Solo. I'm pretty sure LadyHanSolo.tumblr.com is started by Annie and Foley. If yeah. I remember correctly. Yeah, it is, because there's Foley's art. Yeah, right there, yeah. So go to ladyhansolo.tumblr.com, and it's just a Tumblr that, that Annie and Foley started of women dressed as Han Solo. Essentially, yeah. what you do, you, you get Kobe Smulders, too. She would play, you know, of the Avengers, she would play you know, baby Han Solo. 
female Han Solo. I don't know. Her name would be Hansel? Wait. Hansel. Hansel but... Solo. <laughs> that should be her name. There you go. So anyway, that's I guess that's how we're wrapping up our 2012 movies and review is Bill, Bill's fan fiction for what the next Star Wars movie should be. Oh, man. <laughs> well, thanks, Bill. That went on. Now well. I'm distracted because he got pictures of Lady Han Solo up on the monitor. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's not bad. Yeah. Damn. Movies. Goddamn <laughs> movies. I love movies. Movies are the best. I flip out about video games all the time, but I love you some movies. Yeah, that was fun. This was fun. Oh god! So I think you guys... we've been talking for like what five hours now? It's oh two and a half hours. Good lord! Oh, no one's god. listening to all of this. I hung up a long time ago. Uh, so we'll see you guys in line sometime this spring for Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters. Oh jeez! Speaking of Hansel, have yeah. you seen the trailer for that? Or as I, as I like to call that trailer, Jeremy Renner punches a bunch of ladies. That yeah, was that, I know. Like, I that, the... that 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 <laughs> trailer is just like Jeremy Renner punching oh. women. It, it's the craziest trailer. Do you care about who uh, 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 Sherlock is playing in the new Star Trek movie? before we go um do you this do you do you care do you even have a theory if it's still i do have a theory yeah but i don't know do you think it's just con second command joe chim because people say if you put a wig on 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 benedict cumberbatch he looks just like oh that's that's that's, 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 superior that is my favorite theory there's a there's actually a shot in the trailer of a bunch of frozen coffins that look just like the sort of cryo tubes if you watch the trailer, the new... Oh, yeah, I know, yeah. I'm about to go into what I... May not may or may not be spoilers, so... Depending on, yeah, if no one's right listening, or not, No one's yeah. listening anymore, anyway. But um, but what I think is going on is this. Okay. I think that Cumberbatch is playing one of the augmented humans from the Eugenics Wars, or mm-hmm. the descendant of them. Maybe not from Khan's group, but from But from another else. group. And okay. what he's done is he has been infiltrating Starfleet, and he is essentially going to liberate Khan and the whole Kobayashi Maru or whatever no uh, the Botany Bay Bay, I think what is is he's an agent of Khan in fact if you look in the trailer there's a bunch of cryotubes and then there's a short guy and a tall guy walking away from the cryotubes well no it looks like the guy the the tall guy who is clearly not Benedict Cumberbatch looks like Khan He's dressed like Khan. Oh, Jesus. He's a giant guy. And what I'll I have think, to go back because I know what child you're talking what about. I think is, yeah. What I think I is think going they were just on. Scientists. What I think is going on is that um, I think that uh, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch is playing a guy who is liberating yeah. the Botany Bay crew and bringing Khan back. I think he's like Khan's John the Baptist. Because like even like there was an interview with Benedict Cumberbatch this week where he specifically said he has like a super superhuman strength yeah. and stuff but not 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 that he has superpowers but he's some kind of he described his human. character as almost exactly as or it may be that the guys. plot is that starfleet is secretly um trying to bring back the eugenics program or the yeah. genetic modification program i just don't see how you can bring back carol marcus and not have something about it being about khan or something like that unless this movie ends with him actually um, releasing khan and that's what the third the movie ends about. with carol marcus just looking down at her the movie ends with carol marcus going don't ever contact me I'm knocked up with your kid. Leave. Yeah. And that's the last shot of the movie is Captain Kirk going, oh, all right. And then the end. We'll all find out six months from now. We'll have to record another podcast this one. <laughs> not to see if we actually, I guess, the correct uh, director for Star Wars. I think John Favreau is going to play Khan. <laughs> I hope so, too. In the, in the next Star Trek movie. That's my official uh, oh, yeah. uh, uh, prediction for all right. things. I got to go, actually. So Okay. Two and a half hours. Oh, no, you don't want to keep on talking? I think... I figured we'd kill two birds with once with a two and a half hour 2013 movie preview. Sure. Yeah. Okay, we'll shut up. We'll we'll get out of here. Uh, Thanks for uh, uh, sitting in front of Annie this week. It was my pleasure. Yeah, it's my pleasure too. I miss Annie. Annie, hello. If you listen to this, Annie, 
I know you haven't listened this long. Oh, but she I, fucking gave up a long time oh, ago. Yeah. She can't. She barely, She can barely tolerate being here to record the podcast, much less go to everyone to listen to the podcast when she's not here. So we we love you, Annie. We'll miss you. We'll see you, uh, you and Annie, Annie and everyone next week. Okay.